This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberling. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 68. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here with Kyler Tiedem. Kyler, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, as always. This is the podcast that covers everything related to digital transformation, the people, process, technology, and strategy sides of change. And you can find new episodes every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, as well as all the audio podcast platforms. Wherever you listen to podcasts, be sure to subscribe to us there as well. And we have a, an exciting show for you today. We have a few different topics we're going to get to, or three major segments, as always. Uh, the first segment is going to be our our hot topics, our hot topics segment, and this is where uh, Kyler comes up with a lot of great forward-thinking trends uh, and discussion points. These are some really good ones, particularly good ones today. Some doozies, if you will, because uh, I have no idea where you're going to go with these. So this is that's what makes it fun. Yeah. Uh, and speaking of doozies and, and not knowing where in the world you're going to go with it, uh, the first one is data and uh, the and not data itself. Data in and of itself is not that unusual or uh, strange to talk about. But maybe my perception is that it's strange when you talk about it in the context of you can't can you can't contain data just like air. So data is many ways like air. And we're going to talk about how data is like oxygen and can't be contained. I have no idea where we're going with that one. So that. Stay tuned because we're going to learn together where Kyler's going to take us on that hot topic. Um, the next one is li- lithium batteries and how the lithium battery recycling industry and how that's affecting supply chains and how supply chain management is working in that world. There's some good lessons learned there. Uh, we're going to talk about how rural America is the answer to the IT labor shortages. We'll talk about the role of the CIO and the chief technology officer in digital transformation. And then the final hot topic we'll cover today, which is a recurring theme. We can't seem to get through an episode or two without talking about the metaverse. And we're going to talk about the metaverse yet again, uh, talking about the movement of the metaverse to mainstream consumers. And that's actually one that I'm particularly interested in. I'm always interested in learning about the metaverse, but that that shift to the mainstream is where that's where I'm not connecting the dots with metaverse and reality, if you will. So not augmented reality, but like real reality, not metaverse reality. Um, so that's that's what we'll talk about in our, our hot topics today. And then later in the show, stay tuned for this because we'll have a guest on, uh, Walker Reynolds, who's with a company called 4.0 Solutions. He's the CEO of that company. And he's going to be on the show talking about Industry 4.0, smart factory, smart manufacturing, manufacturing technology, manufacturing transformation in general. Uh, really good conversation. And uh, he's a very good guest and a thought leader that I've followed in the industry for quite some time now. Um, so excited to have him on the show. So stay tuned for Walker later in the show. And then finally, last but not least, our third segment is going to be with you, Kyler. You're going to we're going to play a clip from our recent Stratosphere 2022 online conference. And you're going to talk or you're going to play us the clip where you were talking about the culture of uh, creating a culture of transformation. And that was a keynote session that you did during the Stratosphere event, which, by the way, you can go to Stratosphere 2022 
com, and you can see all the you can actually register to listen to all of the sessions in addition to Kyler's. Um, I think there's about 15 others that you can go listen to if you want to go to stratosphere2022.com. But that's what we're going to cover today. But before we get to those later segments, let's talk through some of these hot topics you've got for us, Kyler. Yeah. So um, stay with me on this metaphor. So I looked up um, some research on how data can be compared to air because it's consistently changing. Uh, it's always evolving uh, and you need it to live and breathe and um, you can't see it. So how do you contain it? And it was, you know, kind of a, a really physiological question Um and how do you actually manage your data and how can you contain it? And one big piece of that is visibility. So my question for you, Eric, and what I kind of wanted to talk to you about is how is how important is data visibility and integration to not only a digital transformation, but business strategy in general? Well, first of all, I have to say the, the one uh, comparison or metaphor you forgot was was like, uh, when you don't have clean air, you know, if the air oh, gets that's a great one. Yeah. Pollution. Wow. Pollution. Very good. Pollute the air. You don't want to pollute your data. Yeah. Um, if we really want to go full on double down on this whole metaphor. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, so what was your question again? No, I forgot. <laughs> so it talks about kind of how do you combat that, um, you know, constant changing. Oh. And a lot of that is the strategy of visibility into your data and then overall integration so that you can have actually actionable insights, dashboards, things that actually tell you what the data um, means. And I, I asked you, how important is being able to have that visibility to data, to a digital transformation or business strategy in general? Yeah, it, it is becoming, it's becoming extremely important. In fact, data is becoming somewhat of a, um, a really important currency or asset to, to organizations, even though data doesn't typically show up on a balance sheet, it's typically not, um, it's, it's typically not factored into a valuation of a company. Maybe it should be, mm -hmm. um, in the future, it probably will be, I would think. Uh, but so many organizations are finding that they can't make good decisions. They can't have the right insights or understanding of their business without good data. Um, but there's other, organizations and actually we're going to talk about this a bit with with uh, walker our first guest later on we're going to talk mm -hmm. about tesla and how they use data on mm -hmm. um, the threads we're going to we're going to pull on there but you look at the comparison or the contrast between these legacy companies that are struggling to make any sort of sense of the data they do have or even worse a lot of them aren't even capturing the data they should be mm -hmm. you compare and contrast that to a company like tesla where they have uh, tons of data and they, they thrive on data and their whole business model is built on data. Mm -hmm. So we'll talk more about the Tesla in particular, but I think what you're seeing with organizations like that, or certainly, you know, a more obvious or common, um, data centric organization would be like Facebook slash meta, mm -hmm. um, um, any social media platform, YouTube, Google, obviously where they, they are m processing massive amounts of data and constantly learning from that data and, and mm -hmm. understanding what, consumers are wanting. So I think those are probably some some more relevant, uh, obvious examples. But in general, I think not that we all need to become Facebook or YouTube or Google, but mm -hmm. there's a lot we could learn from these forward thinking tech companies that are focused on on data. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of Tesla, that's a perfect segue into my next hot topic here. 
It's um, lithium ion batteries, which we all know is the main technology for self-driving cars, um, which Tesla obviously has pioneered that um, almost domestication of the raw materials to build actual lithium batteries. As we all know, that's been one of the main blockage in the supply chain, and it continues to be because so many of those raw materials like Russia is the main exporter of nickel, um, so that they're the highest exporter of nickel globally. And obviously there's some unrest over there. And then also Congo and cobalt, and they export cobalt, but have really poor labor laws that a lot of times can be tough for, um, you know, overall integrity to deal with when it comes to those raw materials. So basically what Tesla and other this movement has defined is they can actually get 95% of the raw materials from recycling used batteries. Mm. And then uh, basically they take all the raw materials and then are able to make actual lithium batteries that will power things like cell phones and, and those types of things. So I was curious on your thought on this kind of concept of recycling tech or evolving raw materials to answer the broken supply chain. Do you think that will continue to be a trend in other areas of technology? I do. Not not only in technology, but even just other areas in general. Um, we You reminded me of a client that we worked with, that our team worked with uh, several years ago that actually took recycled, um, recycled vehicles. So they took basically mm. junkyards and they would buy these uh, old automobiles that didn't run anymore and they would just take them apart and take the parts, refurbish them and sell them. And they built a multi-billion dollar company on that. Um, it's a brilliant business model because no one is really doing that. And we also work with the steel company, for example, right now, one of our current clients, steel company that recycles uh, steel to create new steel. So there's a, I think that's just a trend we're starting to see more and more of in all sorts of industries, particularly as people become more aware of and more concerned with um, climate change and mm -hmm. um, just resource limitations on, on earth in general. I think that's just the way uh, people are thinking. Plus, a lot of times it makes a good business sense because you can produce a lot of times you can produce some of these new materials with raw material with uh, used materials or refurbished materials mm -hmm. a lot cheaper and more effectively than you could if you if you're starting from scratch. So I do think that's probably where the world will continue to go in the foreseeable future. Interesting. That's definitely fascinating. And it just shows the overall human innovation, which I always like to see, you know, we're mm -hmm. faced with a problem as a society or a culture, and there's always going to be someone that kind of figures that out or innovates a different way to do it. Uh, so it's, it's de definitely cool to see in manufacturing technology mm -hmm. and all types of industry verticals. Um, so shifting gears a little bit here, I found a very interesting research study that I'm excited to share with you about rural America and its role in IT shortage. So basically, the concept of remote learning has really opened up the door for cybersecurity professionals, IT professionals to seek that type of education in rural areas that they typically haven't had access to before. It also, the, the fact of a remote work, right, opens the talent pool for um, companies to source that IT resources, which is in such shortage um, currently in rural areas. 
so there's so many opportunities for this new kind of untapped workforce to fill a lot of those labor shortages. Mm-hmm. And the, the one resource that is an issue in, in this kind of forced transformation and new opportunity is just overall connectivity. And I wanted to kind of get your feedback on, since we are kind of going into a, a new um, turning the page, right, for a workforce after our COVID-19 pandemic, do you think connectivity will really be the main priority for broadband providers, telecom, those types of things, especially in established countries like the United States? Yeah, I do, because you're you're starting to see both at a consumer and a business level, just increasing demand and pressure put on existing infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So I think just, uh, you know, you look at some of the developing countries where they don't have an infrastructure right now necessarily to support cloud adoption, for example, because they don't have reliable internet or they, in some of the rural areas, they, they can't connect. And even in the United States and other more developed countries, you still have rural pockets with throughout the country that aren't uh, fully connected. So, or at least connected in a reliable high speed sort of way. So I think just the fact that the the software vendors and technologies, consumer and business technologies are all going toward the cloud, or most of them are going toward the cloud. That's just going to, that's, I think, going to increase the speed and the speed of adoption of, of some of these uh, infrastructure pieces that you're talking about. And I think that so interesting that that education leg is really established, not only just in computer science, but in data science and cybersecurity. I mean, cybersecurity, we didn't even really know about in the the modern form that it takes now, um, like 10 years ago. But we now have degrees that you can get in cybersecurity. So just the diversification of that access to um, those resources in education, I think, really opens the door to a whole new workforce as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's pretty cool too. I mean, because it's uh, creating opportunities for people that wouldn't potentially yeah. otherwise had that opportunity, but from a business perspective, it's also, um, I presume it's, it's easing some of the pressure on labor costs because typically you'd had like Silicon Valley and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, London and uh, even Ireland and some, some, some tech hotbeds throughout the world where, mm-hmm. Uh, labor costs have gotten really high. And so now with the pandemic and the combination of looking for alternate um, uh, sources of, of potential labor workers or, or IT workers, um, I think that that's a, a good thing from a business perspective too. Absolutely. And, and speaking of IT workers on the executive level, um, I found a really interesting article that talked about um, the misconceptions of digital transformation and, and why they fail. And one I wanted to share with you because it kind of struck me was the role of CIOs and CTOs. Um, mm-hmm. And this specific study was talking about bringing them into more of the strategy of a digital transformation or any sort of business change is a mistake because they should absolutely just be focused on the operations and be kind of in the trenches, looking at all of those business processes and really focusing on the operations of the business. And that's, to me, didn't really land right. It's it's almost like you, you need that strategic piece and maybe it's kind of an 80-20 type of scenario. Um, but I wanted to get you know your, your feedback on that and working with CIOs or CTOs. Are they strategy or are they operations or is it a hybrid? I think it's a hybrid. Some of the best CIOs and CTOs I've worked with are the ones that maybe they have some blind spots in the tech space or they don't know everything there is to know about technology, 
um, but they really understand the operations of the business that they're working in. Um, to me, that's that's a lot more powerful because then you can connect the dots a lot easier and you can lead with the business needs rather than necessarily just leading with technology. Um, but, you know, you still need to know technology, obviously. I mean, there's certain there's certain capabilities being developed every day that you wouldn't even think of if all we did was think about our current operations and what can we do to improve. So you sort of have to find a way to to to, uh, to merge those two skill sets. But I think more often than not, I think CIOs are are too light on the operational understanding. Mm-hmm. You can just balance that out a little bit better to where, yes, they have technical understanding, but also more operational understanding of how, just how the business works. I think that that's going to be a lot more powerful, make you a lot more effective at a strategic level, but also it gives you more credibility within the organization because you can speak the language. People know that you're not just a tech guy or gal, that mm-hmm. you actually have business needs and finding you're trying to find technical solutions that can help. Yeah, absolutely. I guess I thought of it from a lens of executive alignment and that establishment of strategy. And obviously, those are two key roles in making sure that that strategic approach is successful. You know, I I assume they would be very heavily involved in that and as well as making sure it's executed from that executive alignment type of um, of commitment. So that's kind of what I was thinking of. How would you not be involved in that strategy in these, you know, technical roles. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You do need that, that combination and uh, that operational understanding. I think though, you know, it, in the past, historically, a lot of times the CIO role and the IT director's role, CTO's role was to focus more on maintaining Mm -hmm. systems and sort of the break fix mentality. And and I'm saying this is a generalization, maybe for organizations that are behind the curve on technical adoption. Um, so I so I could see why you'd want to go find someone that's really technical that can fix stuff or um, you know handle all the maintenance and the real tech, technical type of stuff. But if you're a CEO or part of an executive team that's looking to build this competency, you really need to find someone or find a team that can that can bridge those gaps for sure. Absolutely, um, I think that's so important. And your favorite topic, and I'll have to say, Walker opened the door to the metaverse because, you know, (laughs) I still am just completely mind boggled by it. But so just to give you some numbers, basically, they think that there'll be um, this study showed it's actually 224 billion uh, in revenue by 2030 for the metaverse. And that's a gigantic number. You know, that's one of the things where you get into trillions and you're like, this isn't even like you can't even quantify this anymore. You know, um, so a lot of it has been built in the, the gaming world, which we know that augmented reality, that virtual reality. And it started to um, transition into sports, which we've covered a few times here um, on our, our podcast. But a lot of people are seeing, saying that it can't make the jump to mainstream consumers um, and they actually don't want augmented reality or virtual reality, they want actual reality. <laughs> so right. I, I think there's this huge push by capital, by um, Industry 5.0, by businesses to be kind of modernized in that phase. But it's almost like they should um, you know, focus on, on Industry 4.0, right? Um, as opposed to jumping straight into trying to plan for the metaverse. So I, I wanted to get your feedback on that because it seems like there's niche areas in the metaverse that it might make sense. But I personally, as a mainstream consumer, 
can't think of one thing in my life that I would utilize virtual or augmented reality for. And I, I wondered if you could think of something in your life that you would use augmented or virtual reality for. Uh, well, I, I have on a limited basis, just playing a boxing game on our kid, our kids, have one of those Oculus um, augmented reality glasses or whatever, whatever they're called. And uh, I did a boxing match. I did it once and it, it was so intense that I just didn't do it again, but it was actually really cool. Um, it just felt like you were actually in a boxing ring and yeah. that I was actually getting destroyed by this big dude that was a professional boxer, presumably. Um, but it, it was really cool. Like it's very realistic, a lot more realistic than I would have thought. But as far as like a practical day-to-day uh, -day need, I don't know. I, I guess I'm, I was hoping you would have all the answers about the metaverse. Nope. But. <laughs> nope, I don't. But I think we can still seem to watch it. It just seems as though it's it's got a niche consumer base. And it will be interesting to see how that technology evolves into different areas. Like I could definitely see it in fashion and wearables, mm -hmm. right? Um, and sunglasses and those types of different things that might make sense for augmented reality. Um, and also maybe in vehicles in some, some cases, but I don't know that to me is still, I think you should drive in reality, not virtual reality, <laughs> but that's just me. <laughs> right. So, but, um, you know, it's a, a good segue into our conversation with Walker cause he really opened my eyes to a lot of, you know, new innovations or coming trends that I'd never even considered for businesses or manufacturing specifically before. Um, so I'm excited to hear your conversation with him. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and the reason that that's a segue, and it's interesting how every topic seemed to have a, a smooth segue, unlike some of our I past. I that perfectly. No, I <laughs> Yeah, great. It's perfect. It's um, but, <laughs> but as we'll talk about with, with Walker, among many other things, uh, Metaverse is part of or can be part of Industry 4.0 in the way that businesses leverage the more emerging forward-thinking technologies that are out there. So we wanted to have Walker on the show to talk about Industry 4.0, um, manufacturing technology, manufacturing transformation, smart factories, all that stuff. And, and um, we're going we're gonna to dive into a lot of different stuff. So we're going to bring Walker onto the show as soon as we take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting. And we recently hosted our Digital Stratosphere 2022 virtual event. It's three days of packed content related to digital transformation best practices, about 16 or 18 different workshops and different speakers that are presenting on different topics, everything you need to know about transformation. The, the bad news is you, if you miss that event, the event's over. The, the live event already happened. But the good news, if you've missed it, or even if you did attend it and you want to see replays or you want to catch the sessions you missed, you can do that now by going to stratosphere2022.com. Go to stratosphere2022.com, register. All you have to do is put in your, your name and email address, uh, just a few fields. You get immediate access to all the recordings, and the recordings cover everything from digital strategy, um, software selection, organizational change, process improvement, architecture, data migration, cloud, trends in the industry, um, how to avoid failure, some of the legal aspects to think about, contractual aspects to think about as it relates to your transformation. All that is stuff that you'll get by registering for Stratosphere 2022 replay. And again, go to stratosphere2022.com and you can listen to all the replays of all the workshops that you might have missed at the event. So hope you check it out and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon.
Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 68. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham, and we are going to bring on our first guest, or our second guest, actually, after Kyler, although you're, you're technically not a guest, I suppose. You're, you're, uh, you're a staple on the, on the show. Uh, so our first non-staple of the show guest is going to be uh, Walker Reynolds. And Walker, as I mentioned, is the CEO of 4.0 Solutions, which is an education firm that educates organizations on Industry 4.0. Um, he's also, Walker is also a solution architect too, and he's a very interesting, has a very interesting background and skill set in that he can think super big picture, high level futuristic thinking, but he can also bring it down to reality of where, where we are today and look at it more from a, a hands-on technical understanding. And uh, we're going to talk about a lot of different things within this conversation. So all that being said, Walker, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Eric. Yeah, great, great to have you. So uh, I guess just to start, um, just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background, as well as 4.0 Solutions and Intellic and what, what you do in your current roles. Yeah, so I'm um, uh, my journey's a long one, but uh, I'm uh, I've been in industrial automation 23 years now. Um, I and I have a life's mission of helping to save and create middle class jobs. That's literally my life's mission. Everything I do, every business I own. Every venture I create, every partnership we forge is all in service of that one common mission to help save and create middle class jobs in the United States. Initially, my goal was to do that through education. So I have an undergraduate degree in sociology. I, I did all my graduate work in education. But while I was putting myself through grad school, I worked in a mine. I got a job as a laborer in mine, in a mine, and I got introduced to industrial automation. I had I've always been a techie guy. I've always been the, the guy who tore apart my toys on Christmas morning. And, you know, I had a certification in five volt DC systems and stuff. And so I could read IEC drawings. And that's sort of where that confluence happened. The boss knew I could read some I could read IEC drawings. We had a piece of industrial equipment that hadn't operated in a long time. We had an electrician who couldn't read the drawings. They put us together so I could read the drawings and help, help him troubleshoot this piece of equipment that hadn't run in a year. PLC operated remote control, you know, the whole deal. And it was basically in three days, I learned, you know, the basics of industrial automation and I was able to fix the machine. And overnight, <laughs> I became the expert at this equipment. And so then I went back to school, double E, you know, over a five year period, I, I literally transformed my career and it became my path forward. So I spent the first 10 years of my career working for the end users. So I, I charted a path to be ultimately become a systems integrator, to become a consultant so I could help as many manufacturers as I possibly could. Spent the first 10 years working for end users. So I did mining, printing, um, uh, steel industry, tier one automotive. Then I went and worked for a couple of integrators here in Texas. And then I started my own integrator. Um, and then that was in 2015. Today in 2022, 49 companies later. <laughs> so I have 49 companies now. Uh, five of them are in the industrial automation uh, space. Two of them are Intellic Integration 4.0 Solutions. Intellic Integration is a first full service systems integrator, Industry 4.0. So that is, we approach every project as one part of a bigger whole, part of a digital strategy for an organization. We're fully agnostic, so we don't sign any vendor relation partnerships. Um, uh, if we have vendor strategic partnerships, they what it means is that those vendors share the same common values that we have and want to serve the exact same mission but there's no quid pro quo we're that we're we're wholly agnostic 
Um, right. And then 4.0 Solutions does education and outreach. So we train engineers how to do industry 4.0 projects and we train leaders on how to lead them. So we have two products. One is mentorship, one is mastermind. And you can find out more about that at iiot.university. That is where our online university is located. We manage a Discord server, the Industry 4.0 Discord server, which I think has over 4,000 members now. Um, and then we have, I think, uh, 18,000 subscribers on YouTube. We've been doing content since like 2018. And that's sort of how everybody found out who we were. But there's an architecture that we designed that's pretty fam world famous architecture. We won a bunch of awards for it. And, um, and that's basically what we teach. Very cool. Yeah, that's very cool. And that's actually how I found you was on YouTube. Um, I, I was in, 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 I was fascinated by your, by your channel and some of your content. So it was, it was really good stuff. And um, like we talked about in prepping for this discussion, your conversational style and the way you bring some pretty complex topics down to earth and sort of at, at the level a lay person can understand is, is pretty fascinating. And I, I owe that to my professors, by the way. So when I was doing my graduate work in education, I wrote my thesis in constructivism, which is a educational model on how to use, um, you know, how you can use math, English and science. I can teach a lesson in science that serves an English um, purpose. I can I can teach a lesson in math that serves an English purpose. And one of the keys of constructivism is being able to break down very complex ideas into very simple elements to teach. And so mm. I really do owe that to my, my graduate professors. I wasn't born with that skill. Right. <laughs> well, good. So, so I guess I have to ask a question. This is off script already and you know, leave it to me to be the first to go off script before I ever am on script. But uh, I have to ask that I'm fascinated by your mission to save middle-class jobs. Where, where did that come from? Is that it's, yeah. you said it's your lifelong mission. How did that originate? So I'm, um, so I'm from Texas. I lived in Texas till I was seven. My mom died when I was really young in a uh, in an act of domestic violence. My mom was. Th this is all part of the the whole the story. Mm -hmm. um, my so my mom um, got killed by my stepdad when I was seven, and and oh. so I got adopted by a family in upstate New York. So I think by virtue of the fact that my mom died when I was really young, I and um, my brother and I were the ones who found her body. So I went through this horrible, horrible thing as a kid. Wow. But but the the thing is, is I went through the worst thing I was ever going to go through at seven. So I and I've known that my whole life. So you think about that, like all of the mm -hmm. biggest challenges I've faced in my career, in relationships and anything like uh, uh, an asshole boss is nothing to me. Right. right. Uh, an executive who makes twenty five million dollars a year and thinks that he's the smartest person in the room and dismisses the ideas of people on the plant floor just because he's the one who went to Wharton. That guy's nothing to me. He, he, I dealing with him is pales in comparison to what I went through as a kid, but I got adopted in upstate New York in the eighties in 1982. And obviously I don't need to tell people that was right at the beginning of the third industrial revolution, about 10 years in give or so give or take. And that's when Americans got crushed. American manufacturing got absolutely destroyed by Germans and Japanese because they adopted industry 3.0 long before we did. And industry 3.0 is the automation of industrial processes, right? So they adopted the technology American companies didn't. So yeah. what happened was in order for American companies to remain viable, thank you, Lee Iacocca. Lee Iacocca is the one who said, let's go ahead and outsource our supply chain and let's go chase cheap labor. And that's what everyone else did just to stay alive. And so what happened was, all the manufacturers in, in the Northeast, which we like to call the Rust Belt, 
they did this mass exodus, right? They all, they went to Mexico, they went to China, they went, they went wherever they could find cheap labor just so they could stay alive. Now, Americans all thought, we all thought it was just corporate greed, right? And so let's put in trade policy that makes it hard for them to do that. No, it was, it was business need is why they did that. And I learned that in college in the nineties. So I, in the, in the eighties, I saw my friend's parents go from middle-class, upper middle-class to working at gas stations overnight. Like all the jobs were gone. Right. And so I, I, I knew that I, I saw it with my own eyes, the corollary between manufacturing and a vibrant middle class. And then the corollary between a vibrant middle class and social stability. Right. So if you look at all the all the rage culture we have in the United States, all the, the you know, all the conflict that we have socially, all of that is an extension of the decline in the middle class, every single bit of it. Right. And so when I was in college, I learned I took a bunch of labor courses when I was studying sociology and I learned, no, those companies left because they had to. Now, it wasn't corporate greed. They wanted executives want to keep the jobs in the United States. And, and by the way, we work with companies all day long. Every executive that we talk to, their goal is to keep Americans employed. They're not like, oh, hey, how can I offshore this? They're not thinking that. They're only offshoring as a last resort. So in that first job that I got in mining, sort of everything came together. What I experienced in the 1980s, okay, what I what I learned in school in the 1990s. And I was like, in the 1990s, I was like, ah. I want to I want to help rebuild the middle class. I don't know how to do that. I thought I was going to do it through education. But then I got introduced to industrial automation. And I realized, wait a minute, I can get on the ground. I can actually boots on the ground, transform manufacturing in the United States during this fourth industrial revolution. So when TCP IP won the protocol wars in the late 90s, it all sort of came together. Wait a minute. Americans could be the first to digitally transform, truly digitally transform. And by the way, we have. We are we lead the world in digital transformation. And and as long as we keep our foot on the gas and we keep winning over manufacturers one at a time, what will happen is the middle class in the United States is going to grow through technology positions, the the employee of the future in manufacturing and operations analysis. That's that is the future of employment in the United States. Full stop. And that's what our mission is. Interesting. Well, that's very, very cool story. And it's, it's um, fascinating how it's such a personal thing for you. And you don't hear that often in, in our world, you know, digital transformation. It's, it's usually about the tech and, you know, what, what cool new uh, sexy technology can we roll out? But, but to you, it's a lot deeper than that. It's, it's- oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, we are, we are a values based organization. So uh, we, we operate on five core values. They are our values. So transparency, authenticity, expertise, humility, servant leadership. And we and we operate in service of one mission to help save and create middle class jobs by helping manufacturers do more with less using technology. That's that is our mission. Full stop. And to the point to to even this point, I am the chairman of the board at Intellic Integration. I don't have anything to do with the operations, day to day operations. I'm just the chairman. I'm in one meeting a month. Right. Board meeting. And then I'm the the chairman at 4.0 Solutions. I know nothing about the finances of those companies at all. I get, I get an update once a month at Intellic and I get an update once a month at 4.0 Solutions. I know nothing. I can't tell you how much money's in the bank. I don't know. Unless I've just received the report, I can't tell you what's in the whip or anything. Why is that? Because if I know the financials, if I know the financials, then my motivation will change, right? That's human nature. So I focus on mission, 
strategy, vision. That's it. And there are other people in the organization who are tasked with keeping us in business. But we are not in, we don't make money because that's our goal. We make money so we can change the world. Right. Yeah. Very cool. And it's, I think that's, uh, as Parisa just sort of took the words out of my mouth on LinkedIn, it's, it's, it's inspiring, you know, to have that, that sort of, uh, that bigger picture, longer term goal. Uh, yeah, we, we call it principled capitalism, right? You know, this is, this is why Elon Musk is so loved. Elon Musk is so loved because he's a principled capitalist. He, right. He's a capitalist so that he can change the world and save humanity. Right. right. He's not a capitalist so he can buy a 500 foot yacht. Right. I mean, you right. can you can tell the difference between Bezos and Elon. Right. Bezos is a pure capitalist who's ridden off into the sunset to spend his billions and and build a 500 foot yacht. Elon doesn't even own a house. Right. right. I mean, that that's the difference. Right. The difference is he's a principled capitalist and I am in that camp. And, and, and our partners are in that camp. Every single, if you look at anybody we work with, the first conversation I have with a company when they call us is tell me about your values. What do you believe? And, right. and if, and if, and if our values don't align, we don't even have a discussion about synergy at all. Right. Right. Very cool. So I, I guess just before I get to some questions here, just to acknowledge our audience here and thanks to everyone for joining the, the live stream here. Um, we have people from uh, Caratero, uh, Denver, Colorado, Paradise, Texas, uh, Toronto, um, Melbourne, Norway, Manchester, England, Bergen, Norway, uh, Hanafos, Hanafos, Norway. John, John on YouTube is is also in Norway. A lot of people from Norway here, um, Atlanta, Georgia. So we've got a combination of obviously some people from the U.S. and most not from the U.S. I'll be curious to hear feedback from the audience on on whether that whole middle class um, dynamic resonates with you in your in your home country as well. Um, but just to start here, um, just to maybe set some context, you, you mentioned Industry 3.0 and Industry 4.0 throughout the conversation so far. Maybe just help us understand what is Industry 4.0 and how is that different from the way things work back in the 80s when you were first when you're talking about Industry 3.0? So, yeah, it's it, so very important to note. Industry 4.0, the term actually started out um, in the, the early 2000s, there's a there's a holy war in, in our uh, in, in our industry. What is Industry 4.0? There is a camp that says Industry 4.0 is the specification written by the EU to tell manufacturers how to um, use data, right? How to capture data and use data. And there's this whole maturity model and it starts with computerization and all this stuff. That's all horseshit. It didn't work. The EU all <laughs> says it didn't work. In fact, the EU, there's all reports now that says, listen, this was that that standard wasn't worth the paper it was written on. That doesn't mean that the people who wrote it don't know what they're doing. It was that they just took the wrong step first. That's all it was. Industry 4.0 starts with education, right? That's where that's what it is. What is Industry 4.0? It's the fourth industrial revolution. As a so, as a sociologist, what I know is that our industrial revolutions are they are they're not something human beings created. They are they are a natural evolution of progress. Period. If you create if you create intelligence on another life on another planet, and they're not human beings, they will go through five industrial revolutions. Okay, we we know they'll go through five dust, mm -hmm. and they'll happen at the exact same interval, and they will and they'll happen in the exact same order. So the third industrial revolution was the automation of manufacturing processes. So if we start with number one, number one industry 1.0 was really the steam engine. 
industry 2.0 was the assembly line. Industry 3.0 was the automation of industrial processes. It was the automation of the equipment that's in the assembly line. Right. That was that was done two ways. Number one, relay logic, which is just wires and ice cube relays. And number two, with computers. And and at the back end of industry 3.0, you put programmable logic controllers on all these machines. And th and those programmable logic controllers created massive amounts of data. The fourth. But nobody captured it. Right. <laughs> there was they didn't know what to do with it. The data is on the equipment and they and, and, there, and there are tens of thousands of events. Right. So a, a, what is data? It's something that happened and when it happened. Digital data means it's 99.99999% accurate and it comes from a smart thing. The fourth industrial revolution really started right around 2000 and it was the ability to collect the data, collect the data and transform it into information so that you could automate business processes. So the fourth industrial revolution is just this space and time that we're in. Now, it's important to understand Moore's law, which is Moore's law applies when it comes to the industrial revolutions, which is each industrial revolution, each subsequent revolution is half as long as its previous one. OK, so the, the fourth industrial revolution is only running from about the year 2020 or 2000 to 2032, give or take ballpark. OK, the fifth industrial revolution, which will be augmented reality and virtual reality. That is, we're walking around with a heads up display and every physical thing we look at, we have digital data over will be in both the metaverse and in the real world at the exact same time. That's the fifth industrial revolution. Right. Um, that will start right around 2032 for real in earnest. OK, mm -hmm. so most manufacturers have another 10 year window to get this to to become a smart company okay to smart become a smart company and then from the by extension from a smart company become a data company all manufacturers full stop during the fourth industrial revolution will have one of three things happen to them number one they will go out of business okay number two they will get acquired by another company who becomes smart or number three they will become a data company I see this thing on Twitter all the time. These stock analysts, Tesla's overpriced, right? Here, Tesla's worth a trillion dollars. Well, not today, but it will be again, right? So Tesla's worth a trillion dollars. The next 10 biggest auto manufacturers combined are worth a trillion dollars. Does anyone think Tesla's overpriced? And my answer is, hell no, you're an idiot. Tesla's not a car company. Tesla is not a car company. They are a data company who makes cars. Their primary commodity is the Gigafactory, which doesn't have to make cars. It can make anything. The Gigafactory is designed to make anything. Okay? It is an infrastructure. Giga is an infrastructure. It's not a manufacturing facility. It's not deterministic. Okay? And number two, they're a data company. The car is merely the vessel through which Tesla collects its most valuable commodity, which is data. If you don't become like that, you are dead. That yeah. is what the fourth industrial revolution is. And it wasn't possible really until about 2000. We, hit, we needed networks, we needed smart things, and we needed software to put it all together. And that's when it happened. Right. So it's interesting to hear you sort of put that in context, not just the historical context, the context of where we are today, but also where we're headed in the future from 2032 on with Industry uh, 5.0. Um, that's super interesting. And it's interesting to think about those organizations that are still stuck in industry 3.0. You think of all the companies out there, and I imagine you probably consult with a lot of them too. 
that yep. they haven't even come close to getting to industry 4.0, which is a prerequisite, by the way, to getting to 5.0. You can't just, I assume, yep. you're not just going to jump from 3.0 to 5.0 someday and just, just wait till that next wave. Nope. <laughs> you, have to become, you have to become a smart company in order to become a data company. And you have right. to be a data company to go through the fifth industrial revolution. And, and the question is, what do manufacturers have to do? And, and you know, honestly, it, it's not that hard. It, it, I mean, it's painful, but it's not that hard. There's a playbook for doing it. The problem is, is that the, the playbook that the, the, the most of the OEMs that manufacturers are going to are not going to OEMs who give a shit about your digital strategy. They're not even asking you about your digital strategy. What they're looking for is a list of projects they can work on, use cases. But, it, but if, you don't, if you don't put all of those projects, those use cases, all the th problems you're going to solve within the context of a much larger digital strategy on a common technology filtered through minimum technical requirements so that you can create an ecosystem, which is the industrial internet of things. If you can't create a common ecosystem on common technology, you're wasting your money. And so who, who should you not go to? If you're going to Rockwell and you're asking Rockwell Automation, and if you have a partnership with Rockwell, I apologize. But if, if, you're, if you're going to Rockwell Automation and you're saying, hey, Rockwell, come in and consult with us and give us the connected enterprise, you're screwed, full stop. You're not going to find a single architect who doesn't work for Rockwell who isn't going to tell you the same thing I just told you. Okay. The, the, if you're doing that, what you're getting is a, a solution. You're getting a Rockwell solution. Okay. Right. What you need is a, uh, think of it as a quilt. Your, your technical infrastructure is a quilt of all the best solutions from all OEMs connected together on common technology. That's what we teach using a concept called the unified namespace. So, but manufacturers, it's, this isn't that hard. You become a smart company over the course of a three to five year window. And that's connect, collect, store, analyze, visualize, find patterns, predict, report, solve. Once you're a smart company, then you plug into a digital supply chain. So instead of just talking to the links upstream and downstream from you, you're talking to all the links, including the links you don't work with yet. That's what, that is what smart companies do. Smart companies make products that get better after you buy them, and they plug into a digital supply chain. That, right. it's, just, it's, it's simply that simple. So if you're a manufacturer watching this, or you work for a manufacturer watching this, you need to ask yourself, are we on that path? Hmm. Is that where we're going? And if not, you're dying. It's, it's just that simple. Yeah. You're falling yeah. further and further behind. Yep. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Walker talking about Industry 4.0 and other manufacturing technology topics. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success.
Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 68. I'm here talking with Walker Reynolds, who is with 4.0 Solutions, and we're talking about Industry 4.0 and manufacturing technology. Yeah, well, so I've got a few comments I want to get to here, and then a question, too, uh, from the audience. Um, but first of all, I have to you hit a few comments here. I think uh, I don't think it's it's pretty clear that your, uh, your personal story and your personal mission uh, has resonated and struck a chord with the audience here. Um, someone from LinkedIn that doesn't show the name uh, says, I'm sorry it happened to you as a child, but totally agree this horrible experiences make you make you stronger. stronger. Um, Parisa on uh, LinkedIn also says that's an inspiring mission. With passion, there's nothing that can stop you, uh, which I totally agree with. Um, and then a, another comment here that extreme childhood trauma to make good in the world. Amazing. So I think that's a really cool um, story. And um, let me, I'd like to give uh, Zach, Zach Scriven, who's my digital media strategist credit here. Uh, for a very long time, I didn't talk about this story. I, I mean, I talk. Everybody in my in my circle knew about it, and I would talk about it, and they knew it. You know, I talked to my employees and everybody, but publicly, I didn't talk about that story. Yeah, Zach, I mean, that's hard to talk about. I mean, I imagine that's probably not the easiest thing to bring up. Zach said, "One, you know, there's a there's a video we shot a couple of years ago where I'm walking through a marina in upstate New York, and it's the story of Walker Reynolds. And Zach is saying, listen, you need to tell your like your life story, like." And I and he wanted me to do this for months. And I kept saying, Zach, no one cares about that. It's not it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't go to this. And, he, and Zach insisted over and over and over again. You're wrong. Like you're wrong. This it's a key part of of how you've gotten to where you are. And you have to tell that part of it like the, the audience needs that context. So I want to give Zach all the credit because it was never my idea to to ever even mention it. But now when that question does come up, I do tell that part of the story. And it's because Zach insisted, hey, th that context is important. So, Zach, thank you, brother. But and it's a it's a reminder, too, that we all, you know, being in the professional services space as you and I are, I mean, it's it's we're all human and we want to work with humans and flawed or not, or, you know, the imperfections that go along with that. And the, that's the authenticity. That, that's authenticity. That's, you yeah. know, it's um, it's uh, Americans crave authenticity because there is so much. Um, I don't want to say fakeness. It's not that it's it, there's so much production in the world, right? There's so, yeah. I, I think fake is too hard of a word. Uh, I think I, we, we crave authenticity. And, and the interesting thing is that the nature of work is changing, right? It used to be like when our careers started, and I, I'm assuming Eric, you're around my age, right? So when, when our, when our careers started, you, there was a, there were clear lines in the sand between work and home, right? right. You were either at home or you were at work and this is home time and this is work time. That's changing. That I mean, it has changed. You are always at work and you are always at home. And so therefore, the values that you have at home need to merge, need to merge into the values you have at work. So now what I encourage people to do when they're going to find an employer, it's not benefits and income. And it's I don't even talk about any of that stuff. What I talk about is you need to go find an employer who shares the values you have and they don't just put they don't just write it down and put it, you know, it's a mission statement that they don't really work towards or it's values they don't really have. You need to ask questions about real values because you're always going to be at work right. and you're always going to be at home. And and that and that's the nature of what I think drives us towards authenticity is we want authenticity at home. We expect it at home. And because we're always at work and always at home in this new economy, we, we need authenticity at work as well. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. That's that's really well well said. Um, here's a here's a comment I want to sort of springboard into a question for you, uh, Walker. 
And this is from Michael on YouTube. He says, absolutely resonates with me in Mexico. As the southern neighbor of the U.S., it is good for both countries that Mexico gets rich and, be, rich and becomes a better customer of U.S. products and services. Yep. So I, I guess just to maybe back up a little bit and turn that into a question as it relates to, to the more global scale here. Um, how does everything you're talking about as far as the um, you know, wanting to help the middle class and, and the and the Did we lose Eric? Whole into a U.S. centric uh, mission of sorts. Um, so the answer is this. It, um, so I, Michael Dowdell, the guy who answered the asked the question. We we know Michael. I I know what company he works for. He's a visionary thought leader. Um, you know, the customers that Michael works with in Mexico, the vast majority of them are are suppliers for American companies okay and american consumers are consuming the goods for the most part are consuming the goods from the suppliers that the sub-assemblies that go into the finished goods that michael serves though they don't go anywhere those suppliers don't go anywhere those suppliers start making products that are bought in mexico through a thriving middle class that is grown in mexico what we did by offshoring supply chain into Mexico is we created the infrastructure for the for Mexico to have their supply chain for the consumer economy. That that's the that's the difference. The mm. difference is is that we create new suppliers here in the United States who's who are manufacturing the goods, you know, as a function of logistics, manufacturing the subassemblies that go into the finished goods. But the but the here's the fundamental difference. This, this is the biggest key difference. Operations analysis. And if you look at our clients, our clients have manufacturing facilities all over the world, but they no longer have manufacturing facilities all over the world to manufacture goods as cheaply as possible to sell them in the United States for the biggest margins. No, they manufacture in China to sell in China. They manufacture in Mexico to sell in Mexico. They manufacture in Costa Rica to sell in South America. But what do they do? What do they what do they do with the data they collect in those manufacturing facilities? They aggregate it in a common infrastructure and they use U.S. based engineers, data scientists and operations analysts to optimize their manufacturing operations in their offshore facilities. That is the that's the new economy for the United States. Why? Because at, as an industrial nation, the United States, Germany, Japan, you know, all Western Europe, Germany, Japan, um, United States as the three key leaders we're so far ahead of um other industrial economies our economy transforms as a fourth industrial uh or an industry 4.0 economy before mexico's does right mexico but one of the things some interesting things about company uh, countries like mexico we had to go through the physical infrastructure first we needed a lot of copper all over our country right mm -hmm. you, telephone lines, you know, Ethernet cables. Countries like Mexico don't have need that. Me Africa doesn't need that. Uh, India doesn't need that. Now it's all 5G. They'll be able to put infrastructure in place much, much faster than we did. And mm -hmm. so they will catch up at the speed of light to, to where the we Western Europe is, the United States is, Germany, Japan, et cetera. That's super interesting. I never, yep. I never connected those two data points into, into that context. That's, that's a really interesting point.
So in some ways, what you viewed as maybe a disadvantage in the past of not having that infrastructure in some of these countries that maybe they're an advantage now because they can catch up faster. That's the good news. Absolutely. And, 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 and in the United States, think about it. There, there are many, many, what did, what did we do when we onshored operations here in the U S we moved to rural areas. Okay. We, we went to the place where there were lots of farms so that we could get farmers to work in our manufacturing facilities. Right. Well, those places generally don't have a lot of infrastructure. So if you look at one of the barriers for manufacturers to start collecting data and aggregate it centrally and, you know, get their data into huge data lakes so they can do big data analytics, it's infrastructure is one of the key problems, right? They're having to right. spend lots of money. 5G changes all of that. So now 5G literally overnight, you know, you can't collect all your data over 4G LTE. It's too slow. It's only 25 meg, right. give or take. 5G gives you a 100x uh, increase in, in uh, decrease in latency and a 100x increase in bandwidth. You can literally collect all your data over wireless infrastructure using 5G. And we shot a video on this about, hey, the implications of 5G are legit. They're, they're real. Literally, once we have the 5G infrastructure in place, there is no smart thing on the planet that you can't collect data from without having to put infrastructure. You don't have to put the infrastructure in. It's there. It's all around us. When you leave your home, you'll be on the same network at home as you are when you get to work. As in, instead of right now, I'm on, uh, I'm on a, a, an encased network at my house, right? Same thing when I go to work. I'm in a completely different network. With 5G infrastructure, you're on one common infrastructure. Right. And that's, that's, gonna, that's a huge game changer for emerging economies like Mexico. And by the way, Mexico's economy is much closer to ours than it is to say Africa or something. I mean, I, I spent a lot of time in Mexico. Mexico is incredibly advanced. They got very, very smart workers. They, you know, they're highly educated workers. I mean, they're, they have fundamentally transformed their economy in just one generation. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, that is. It's super fascinating to see how, how much the, that global economy has changed. Yeah. Um, I, there's an audience question I want to get to in a second, but I have sort of a segue transitionary type question to, to maybe build on something you talked about before. You, you've talked about 5G, you talked about metaverse, you've, you've hit on some specific technologies that it can enable Industry 4.0 and or 5.0 in the future. What are some of the technology, some of the additional technologies that really constitute Industry 4.0, like MES and some of the other technologies that sort of fit into that ecosystem? So it's 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 really two things. It's 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 the minimum technical requirements of the technology, and then it's the and then it's the capability. So I want to I want to I'll answer the question by starting starting with I, I kind of want to encapsulate what are some of the challenges that manufacturers have because it has to do with this technology piece. Be, prior to the year two thousand, all network infrastructure for the most part was master slave, server client pull response right. Serial communications were king all the way up until 2000. And what does that basically mean? It means that you used one common pair of wires. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to generalize here. You used a common pair of wires to collect all data. Mm -hmm. And that was done through transmission and receipt, right? TXRX, serial communications. So you could only get a response from a smart thing, one smart thing at a time. Okay. So you had to make a request and then the smart thing would respond and you would get that. And that request had to originate somewhere. The master or the server had to request that data. That's serial communications. Okay. Highly, incredibly inefficient. In the late 1990s, and, and this is the reason that oil, oil and gas companies 
water, wastewater facilities, all the people who were out in the middle of nowhere couldn't collect their data because they had they had a little tiny amount of bandwidth and they were trying to make pass all these requests out to, you know, from a server. They were making requests out over these networks. They could only get one response at a time. Third of the time they're disconnected. So they're just sitting there timing out. And most of the data they were requesting didn't change. 90, uh, 90% of all data in your infrastructure doesn't change at least once per minute. 90% of all the data points don't change at least once per minute. And they were requesting them every second or every five seconds. So there are four, there are four um, principles of industry 4.0 technology. Number one, it has to be edge driven. That is the smart thing has to notify you of its data, not you request. Okay. Right. Number two, it's got to be report by exception. You only send the things that change. Number three, it has to be open architecture. That is all it has to be on. It has to be a technology that isn't owned by anyone. Okay. Right. And number four, it has to be lightweight. That is it has. And so the in the late 1990s, the, 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 the premier technology was developed in the late 1990s by a guy named Arlen Nipper. He's the most famous inventor of this technology and Andy Stanford Clark, who was at IBM at the time. Actually, I think I, he's still at IBM and Arlen is the he's I, he's the CTO at Cirrus Link. They created a technology for Philips 66 called MQTT. Everyone is familiar with it because if you use iPhone Messenger, if you do iMessage or you use uh, Facebook Messenger, when someone's typing and you get those little ellipses, right, you can see that the other person is typing. That's MQTT. Right. It's a stateful edge driven technology. So um, we use MQTT for nearly everything in, in, in infrastructure wise, but it's not the only technology. The only reason we use MQTT is because it's edge driven report by exception, lightweight open architecture. You could use AMQP, which was developed by Microsoft. You can use DNP3, which is really common in the energy industry. You have to use a broker technology that will allow the smart thing to publish its data to you. Only the stuff that changed, super lightweight, and in a in an infrastructure where anything else who supports that minimum that technology can consume it, right? The most manufacturers have that old technology, e even if they're on Ethernet cables. So even if they are on a local area network over category six cables, they're no longer using Data Highway Plus. They're no longer using explicit serial. The underlying technology is still based on serial. It's still mm -hmm. server client. It's still poll response. And uh, there's a really common question uh, response I get here, which is, hey, Walker, what about subscriptions and OPC UA? What about sending up subscriptions? Well, all a subscription is, is a cheat. <laughs> it's still instantiated by the server. The server has to subscribe, not the client setting up a subscription on behalf of the entire infrastructure, right? So in order for you to become one of these smart companies, you know, connect, collect, store, analyze, visualize, and then find patterns, predict, report, and solve, you have to have, A, a concise digital strategy, okay? You have to pick the right technology so that you can scale, okay? And you got to use the right partners, the ones who will do all the projects, do all the use cases, solve all the problems using the right technology and in service of your digital strategy. That the, in a nutshell... That's what it is. Those are that that is the technology driven approach for industry 4.0. Interesting. Yeah. 
Okay. Very cool. Well, thanks for that, that overview. And, and I think uh, that's a good holistic view without getting too caught up in specific technologies. Well, like I, imagine, imagine you're a machine builder. This is the best example. Imagine you're a machine builder. Okay. I build okay. a piece of equipment for a manufacturer. What is the old way of integrating that piece of equipment into your business? Okay. And if you're an executive who works at a manufacturer, you should be asking your OEMs this question. What data do you have available and how is that going to be integrated into our business? Okay. Not how is that machine just going to do its functional role, but what data is on that piece of equipment we can collect and how is it going to integrate? Okay. So the old way of doing it is the machine builder only gave a shit about the functional specification, functional acceptance test at the end. Does it do all the functions it's supposed to do? There's nothing on there about data. There's nothing on there about collecting that data or plugging into infrastructure. There's none of that stuff, okay? And how do I know? Because I was an engineer who worked for the end user who specced out all the equipment, and I was always blown away by the fact that we never asked what data is available and how are we going to collect it. So what would happen is they put that machine on the plant floor. Then all of a sudden they realize, you know what? We need status on this machine. The, this, this machine is down too much, and it's, it's screwing up our operations. We need to collect data from it. Well, how do we do that? Now we bring in an integrator. We spend a couple hundred thousand dollars. The integrator learns what data is on there, and then they figure out what technology they can collect, and then they collect it, and they put it in its own little data silo, and here you go. No, the f this is what OEMs in the industry, in industry 4.0 OEMs do. They, they give you a document that tells you, here's all the data that's on this piece of equipment. Here's how it's organized. Think of it as a tree structure. And they say, when we install it, you're going to show us where your broker is located. Give me the IP address of that broker, the username and the password. We're going to point that machine to the infrastructure. And the moment we flip the switch, the data just streams into the infrastructure. It, no additional cost, no additional integration time, no anything. That is industry 4.0. It's not spending a year building a supervisory control and data acquisition system with manufacturing execution that's custom to just that that machine. It's plug the machine in, point it to the infrastructure, flip the switch on, and data streams. Right, right. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Walker talking about Industry 4.0 and other manufacturing technology topics. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 68. I'm here talking with Walker Reynolds, who is with 4.0 Solutions, and we're talking about Industry 4.0 and manufacturing technology. So how about this? Here's a, here's a question from uh, YouTube that, that I feel like we could spend the whole interview talking just about this one question, but what are some of the pitfalls 
that companies go through in their journey to a smart company and how to avoid it. It's so all the stuff you're talking about that industry 4.0, what are some of the biggest pitfalls that companies face when they're trying to get to this point? And you're absolutely right. I mean, we could spend forever going over this. All right. So I'll try to be as concise as I, I possibly can here. Um, it, it really starts with um, strategy. Okay. You, manu organizations only fail for three reasons. And by the way, the vast majority of manufacturers who set out to digitally transform and what is digital transformation? It's going from an industry 3.0 company to an industry 4.0 company. It's not digitizing eat travelers. It's not, you know, taking, turning everything from paper into a digital interface. That's a subset. That's digitization. That's a subset of digital transformation. Digital transformation is all about becoming a smart company. Okay. That is, an, and what is a smart company? It's a company that learns from its data natively. Okay. That is, it gets, we optimize our processes through the collection, the storage, the analysis, and the reporting of the digital data all across our organization. Everybody wants to do predictive analytics. I want to predict failures of equipment. Well, okay, hire a data scientist and um, test this hypothesis. You know, I want to see, I want to be able to monitor this temperature sensor and predict the failure on this process, this value X for that value Y, right? That's right. easy crap. That's easy. Smart, that's easy stuff. Any idiot data scientist can do that. You, you could have a 1.9 GPA when you graduated from college as a data scientist, and you could do that linear regression. It doesn't matter who you hire for that one. The real value in machine learning and artificial intelligence is finding the hypotheses you should test. That is looking for patterns in data that you can't see with the naked eye, corollaries between data points you never thought were related. That's what machine learning and artificial intelligence really does for a smart company. So why do they fail? Wrong strategy, wrong technology, wrong partners. Those are the only three reasons. If you look at why organizations fail, it's because they try to do digital transformation the way they do everything else. Okay. Mm -hmm. So they want to do it top down. They take a person who they think is a subject matter expert. They put them in charge of everything and they approach everything as a standalone project. They go to McKinsey, they go to Cognizant, they go to Rockwell and they say, hey, help us digitally transform. And they come in and they, they spend a million dollars a month anal analyzing the business. And what you get from them is a 100 page document. That's exactly the same 100 page document they gave to the last customer. 99% of it's the same. It's got a list of projects that they want you to pay them to do. And none of them are interrelated. <laughs> so it, we, you, digital transformation is all about approaching every project as one part of a bigger whole on that common strategy. Okay. So what I'm building today stands on the shoulders of what I built yesterday. And what I build today is the foundation upon which what I do tomorrow will be built. Okay. That starts with education. So number one, digital transformation starts with education. That, and, and this is one of the biggest arguments I have with people all the time. You take a legacy organization and you say, go digitally transform. They have no idea what to do. They have to be taught first. Part of our strategy as an integrator was we'll do the work in the beginning at the same time while we're educating you. And within a 24-month window, you own this. You take over. Your people take over. And, in, and then you just iterate and solve your problems as a smart company. The biggest challenges, though, companies are led by the wrong people. That, at the end of the day, that's what it boils down to. You need transformative and disruptive leadership. And that leadership and that transformative and disruptive leader has to be a technical person. You and I were talking about this earlier, right before we went live. You know, I was developing yesterday, 
I'm a, I'm, I'm, I own 49 companies. I'm a super busy guy. I work 110 hours a week and I develop every single week. I, I write code every single week. Why? Because industry 4.0 companies have to lead, be led by te uh, technological leaders, people who understand the technology. Elon, Elon Musk, it, it wealthiest guy on the planet, he's still in engineering meetings every day. He, every single day, he is solving the actual problems. He stays close to the technology. Why? Because the CEO of the future is a technologist. It's not an accountant. It's not a finance person. It's a technologist. It's an engineer. It's a software developer. It's a data scientist. It's someone who understands how to leverage data, transform it into information, and build applications that sit on top of that information to make us better. The old legacy model, what the biggest hurdle was, the CEO knew nothing about the tech. He could barely turn on his laptop. And he would just delegate. He would delegate technological solutions to the IT department that would then operate like the Gestapo. And they would do everything top down. They wouldn't solve people's problems on the plant floor up. And we'd get nowhere. That's how you got that bifurcation of IT and OT. Why? Because operations is all about production. And IT is all about security and compliance. The organization of the future, IT, is all about data enablement. They're a service organization that works to converge operational technology with the information technology into one common ecosystem. Yeah. It's your biggest challenge. Yeah. Very interesting. And I, and I was, I'm glad you brought up the, the coding uh, case study of you, you doing some coding still, because I think that that was, as we talked about that before we went live, I didn't have time to fully process that before we hit the live button, but um, it did make me think that, you know, it, it's like, you've got to have a combination of that strategic vision of just the, you know, business models, where our industry's headed, what, what our customers need and want. So that, that sort of traditional executive mindset. But what you're saying is you also need that bottoms up to sort of com combine and, and complete the picture, not just having that, that high level ivory tower vision of the future, but also how could the technology work in ways we haven't even thought of yet because it, it just at the, at the top, it's strategy and vision. At the bottom is are the problems you start with. The smartest right. people, let me let me say that. And Eric, by the way, we have about five dozen or so on our on our channel right now watching uh, 63. Uh, I want to make sure we we pass along your contact info. That question. Right. Okay. Right. Um, the um, top down is strategy and vision. The smartest people in any organization, let me say this again. If, and I ask this question when I meet with leaders, when I go in front of the board of directors. Question number one, literally question number one is, do you believe you are the smartest people in your organization? And I, I get the board, of, I get the chief technical officer, I get the CEO, I get the CFO to admit they are not the smartest people in the organization. I make them say it. If they don't, I leave. I just walk out. You're dead. You're dead. You're absolutely dead. Um, the smartest people in your organization are the people who do the actual work. They may not talk like you. They may not have the degrees that you have. Okay. They may not have read good to great. They may not have went, read how to win friends and influence people. They, they may not think quickly on their feet, but they sure as fuck know more about your operation than you do. Right. They know all your problems. And what you want to do is start digital transformation by solving their problems. Why? Because if you solve their problems, you're solving the business's problems at scale by extension. The biggest mistake organizations make is they put somebody in the ivory tower in charge of owning digital transformation. And then it's their ideas. They're, they're the gatekeeper. No, no, no. They are the enabler. 
They are the service organization for solving the problems on the plant floor. That's right. that's who they are. That's when I talk about those first two, those two huge steps. Step number one, that connect, collect, store, analyze, visualize, find patterns, predict, report, solve. That three to five year first big step, that's all solving plant floor problems. Step right. two, plugging into digital supply chain, that's your business problem. Right. Yeah. No, it's, that's fascinating. Now, do you, do you ever have, um, get along that line of, of the frontline people being the smartest people in the organization, on the flip side, do you ever run into situations where those people are going to resist this industry 4.0 yep. mentality because it could be perceived as a threat to their jobs? And, and actually, they might have the exact opposite. They think the, the impact might be the exact opposite of what you're trying to accomplish back to your mission statement of saving middle-class jobs. It seems like technology can be a threat to people at times. So how do you bridge that gap between what the end result will be and what people's perceived end result might be in, in, in the negative way? That does come up occasionally. But very rarely, you know, the biggest objection from the rank and file. Oh, we've What's heard that? this. Before. We've heard this before. Flavor of the month. Oh, right. I've heard this. This is just this is a you know new new color, different week. Um, this is a new executive who came in, who's got a big idea, and they're not going to solve any problems. Flavor of the month is their biggest objection. But let's let me answer your question directly though. For the people who do say, well, aren't I going to aren't I basically going to engineer myself out of my, out of a job? No, I use the Coca-Cola example. I use I use the example of the companies who are more advanced here. If you look at Coke, they have dark facilities, right, where they have the lights off, where they're bottling. They don't have fewer employees in those facilities. They have more. <laughs> the control room is full of people analyzing data. And guess who's analyzing that data? Guess who's analyzing those processes? The people who used to work on the machines. Do you know every organization, you go to talk to any manufacturer, you go to talk to any manufacturer and you say, do you have more people than you need? Do you have less people than you? Do you have open jobs that you can't fill? And the answer is yes. And if you ask them why they can't fill them, it's only one of two reasons. Either they can't find the right person or they don't have the capital. They don't have the funding to do it. You know what they do the moment they've engineered you out of a dangerous position, uh, out of a position where you're just flipping boxes with your foot? They take you and they reappropriate you into that position they can't, they can't fill. That's what happens. And they start investing in that in that middle analysis layer of the organization, which is where all the efficiency gains are captured. And then what's the first thing that happens when you capture efficiency gains in a transformative economy? You capture market share. You grow and you add more people. And it's a net gain. And by the way, you, you can just look at the data here. Go ahead and look at Industry 4.0 companies. Look at their growth pattern. Look at the number of people they have per dollar generated. And then look at, Look at industry 3.0 companies. Don't take my word for it. Right. It cre yeah. they cre this creates jobs, net jobs, net gains. Yeah. And I think painting that vision of what those people are going to be doing and, and helping transition them, I think that's really the key from a, from a change perspective to make sure that they, you know, you alleviate and mitigate some of those fears. You, you uh, Andrew Oswald's question. Can we, do you have that one on the chat? Do you see that one? Uh, uh, the last one here, this uh, right here. Already started? Yeah, this is a good one. So if you've already started doing digitalization projects, but now realize you took the wrongish approach, how do you breach that topic with leaders to correct course without losing faith in you? It's a great question. The answer is making mistakes is part of the problem. Okay. It, it, or making mistakes is part of the process. Listen, we learn nothing from success. We, I, let, me, let me say that again. As a sociologist, we human beings learn absolutely nothing from success. We don't learn a thing. 
We learn everything through failure. Right. You need to embrace the challenge. You need to you need to go into every single day. You need to work for an organization that wants you to make mistakes. You know, uh, one of my mentors used to tell me this: if you haven't screwed up lately, you're not taking enough risk. If you, uh, there are business leaders who say if you've never filed for bankruptcy, you're not taking enough risk. I I disagree there, but it, it's the same thing in technology. If you you fail, you make them you you screw up six times for every one win. You got the win because you screwed up six times. You have to work for an organization that embraces that. There was this great company in Indiana that we worked with. The chief executive officer's mantra was ready, fire, aim. Make mistakes, recover quickly. That's literally what he would tell his people. You need to be working in an organization that doesn't punish you for making a mistake. Okay? Now, if you make 60 mistakes in a row with no win, that's not a positive trend. That's a negative trend. You got to let that, you got to reappropriate, reeducate, whatever you got to do. But you need to understand that when we talk about agility and digital transformation, which we do, I haven't mentioned it here. Agility is all about adjusting to the changing winds. Digital transformation is about exponentially increasing the collective knowledge of an organization. If you were going to distill it down, that's what it is. By converting data into information and getting it into the hands of any consumer who wants it, when they want it, where they want it, in the format they need it, okay? You are going to exponentially increase the collective knowledge of an organization. And where you where you started in digital transformation was a function of what the organization knew at that time. What you want is a function of what you know. As you get smarter, what you want changes exponentially. You have to be working in an organization with a transformative and disruptive leader who not only understands that, but embraces it. Right. So if you tell me, if you tell me you work in a place where you've got to um, you have to have a fear. Of, of of telling your leadership that we need, we need to do a course adjustment, you work for the wrong organization. Right, right. So that's great, great advice. And, and I guess just sort of to bring this all full circle and, and we're, we're at the top of the hour and I feel like we could easily talk about this for three to four to five hours, uh, but in the interest of time, uh, what, what advice would you give to a manufacturing company that's not there yet? And I think it's safe to say most, manufacturing organizations are not there yet in terms of fully adopting and embracing the industry 4.0. What, what advice would you give to a manufacturer that's about to get started on that journey and they're, or they're struggling to get there? I'd say th uh, three things. So number one, you have to change the way you approach solving your problems in your organization. So that is um, it, when you, when you use your consultants and your integrators, you need to use, you need to use a consultant or an architect who is wholly agnostic. Okay. Mm -hmm. That in, and, and so let's say, let's say I've got a systems integrator I'm working with and that systems integrator is a Rockwell integrator or they're a Siemens integrator. Doesn't mean don't, don't keep working with them. What it means is you don't allow them to architect your solution. You hire a agnostic consultant who is your architect, who is going to design a technology driven approach that that integrator will build solutions to meet using minimum technical requirements. So you have to change the way you approach your problems. Number two, join our Discord server. Before you do anything, just go to our Discord server. You can go to iot.university forward slash Discord. That Discord server is full of all the people all over the world who are doing these solutions. And we're, we're talking theory. We're, we're talking minimum technical requirements. We're talking everything, okay? Go in there and become more fluent in what Industry 4.0 actually is before you spend any money. 
And then number three, start with a digital transformation maturity assessment. Okay. You need, and, and, and we have a model that our, all of our members use. So we're not the only ones who do it. 4.0 Solutions isn't the only company that does DTMAs. In fact, Michael Dowdell does it. Uh, Dave Schultz, Mario Shigawa. There are many members of our community who use our methodology to assess organizations. And that assessment starts with 10 pillars for Industry 4.0 and then scores you against the rest of the companies in the data set at this point, which is like 1,400 manufacturers. So you know exactly where you stand relative to the other companies in the assessment. And then you quantify where you are, where you want to go, you design an architecture, and then you start iterating. One use case at a time built on common technology. That's what you need to do. If, if there's any mistake I've seen organizations make, they try to bite off way more than they can chew. They want everything done three days ago. Um, and they don't embrace the, 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 the truism that you are going to get smarter during this process. And as you get smarter, what you want is going to change. And you, and you have to lay the foundation for being able to adjust to that all in the beginning. So number, number one, um, change the way you think. Number two, join our Discord server. So immerse yourself in the thinking, okay? Number three, start with a digital transformation maturity assessment. You, if you, we, I say to my, my team all the time, if a company doesn't have a digital strategy, that is, they don't have a three-sentence statement that says, this is our digital strategy, and they don't have an architecture that's been designed by an industry 4.0 architect, then they're starting with a DTMA, period, full stop. We're not doing anything for them without the DTMA. Yeah, because it, it sort of gives you a sense of where you're starting from, right? You can't really get to where you want to go unless you know. Well, it's all about taking the wool off your eyes. It's all right. about this is where you really are and this is where you really want to go. Yeah, here are the pitfalls, here are the landmines, and here's what we've got to get past to get there. If you go to, if you call, you could call anybody who works at Tesla right now and you could ask them, what is your digital strategy? What is Tesla's digital strategy? They'll be able to recite it from memory. Every single employee. Hmm. Yeah, fascinating. So it's, it's embedded in the DNA of that company. It's not a separate initiative. It's not a separate work stream that's sort of working in parallel. It's, it's embedded in their day-to-day. It's the, so, it's the soap they wash with every morning, the water they, the, the water they drink every day. Yeah. Yeah. And that's great advice too. I think too often we think of transformation as something we're just going to delegate off to the side here. We're going to let this PMO run that project and just let us know if you need anything. Rule rule number one in digital transformation, digital transformation is not a project. It's a strategy. It's a, it's a strategy for the way you run your business. Yeah. Strategy, business model, mindset, all that stuff you've talked about. Right. Exactly. That's great. So how, how can, uh, I know we're streaming to both uh, your platforms, my platforms. How do people get a hold of you for those that aren't familiar with who you are? So uh, the best place, uh, you can go to, you can look up 4.0 Solutions on their YouTube channel. You can go to iiot.university. Um, you can go to intellicintegration.com. Uh, you can go to LinkedIn. We, I mean, you know, you can DM me on Discord. You can um, message me on LinkedIn. Um, and then uh, I think we have a contact email or whatever. I think, you know, but I, I have a team that that'll if, if if I'm the person you're supposed to talk to, they steer you right. They steer you right to me. Um, and uh, but we I mean, we have a huge team, you know, on the Intellic and 4.0 solution side. And then also we have member, you know, member uh, integrators. Uh, jo- John McKeon's on here from um, um, John McKeon, who is the he's the principal at Galleris 
solutions in Ireland. He's one of our integrator partners. So whenever anyone calls us from Western Europe, we're always talking to them in Western Europe in conjunction with GIS. We have Mario Ishigawa from PAC IoT. He's based out of Brazil. Same concept. Uh, Dave Schultz, who's out of Chicago. Same concept with Dave. Uh, it, Mexico is going to be Michael Dowdell. You know, and, and it's on and on and on and on. Yep. So you've built a whole, a whole network of uh, resources here. Uh, Correct. Is- yeah. All right. Thanks, Walker. Thanks for being on the show. That was a great conversation. Uh, one of my favorites that I've ever done, to be candid. Um, really good stuff. In fact, Kyler and I have a lot to talk about, and a lot to debrief on and catch up on after that conversation. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll come back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 68. I'm here with Kyler, and we just had Walker Reynolds on the show talking about Industry 4.0 and a bunch of other stuff. What were some of your observations and takeaways from that conversation, Kyler? Yeah, that's a, a tall order. That was an unbelievable conversation that covered so many different things. Um, I, you know, obviously, Walker has experienced, you know, tragedy in his life and um, that mission-driven mindset. I think is is really powerful in establishing a con- company culture and an overall culture of purpose, which we talk a lot about on the change management side. And I'm just so fascinated why how he thinks. Um, you know, as a survivor of childhood abuse myself, um, I know that the brain develops differently when you are a child and you have those traumatic experiences. So it's always interesting to see how people utilize that and see it as baggage or as a skill set that they can transition to do good in the world. And that's a journey, obviously. But I think his core values of preaching that you need to have that at home, at work, at life, it really needs to be full circle in order for you to be successful is a model that is, is so important for companies to understand and really establish. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, I agree. And it was, it was interesting that, uh, you know, I, I too had a semi-traumatic childhood. It wasn't easy. And, uh, you know, there are times where, you know, I don't dwell on it, but hearing someone like him talk, it puts it all in perspective and think, well, I did not have it that bad. I, I, or I didn't have anything that traumatic in my life. Uh, but what was interesting, what I found probably the most interesting, and I, I, couldn't tell during the interview if it showed on my face, but I was actually shocked when he said that. I mean, it just blew me oh, away. Sure. I, it's not your normal and, conversation on ground control. Yeah. And I froze for a moment. I, maybe it was just in my head and it, you didn't notice, but I didn't know where to go from there. I was like, oh my gosh, like, how do you, I can't just dive into history 4.0 after yeah. hearing that, you know? So, and maybe it was like, maybe it's tying back to the, 
the uh, boxing metaverse uh, yeah. thing that I right. talked about before, but I felt like he kind of gave you the jab with that story, but then he comes at you at you with the, the knockout blow and he says, well, it's not, a, I don't view it as a negative thing. It actually helps me and here's how it helps me by recognizing that um, I've already been through the worst thing that's ever gonna happen to me in life. And I'm like, that is mm-hmm. so simple and basic, but yet mind blowing all at the same time. And I know that was not at all the intention of the conversation was to get into that stuff, but it was, uh, I mean, it was a good reminder about how we're all human and you know how, human connections and how we all have stuff we overcome in life. Um, so that was uh, super informative. So uh, very, very interesting conversation for sure on that front. Absolutely. And I think it's so great that he shares that because it it really showcases like the foundation of why he established this business, why he established the company. But it also can be scaled to different actual business values and overall foundation of just establishing a for good culture. And I like how he um, connected it to the leadership, right? I, that really resonated with me so many times, especially in corporate America or, or global corporate organizations, you see almost like this godlike persona for leaders. Um, And then that creates this barrier where there's expectations that you cannot fail. You know, you have to continue to achieve for this person. And then you you create this this um, culture of hiding any sort of mistakes. And imagine the amount of time you could have spent fixing those mistakes instead of actually hiding them if you did establish a culture of transparency and make sure that you did build that trust with your project team. And hopefully that will be a transition within kind of the corporate world specifically so that we can just be more effective. And it really stifles innovation, as he said, when you do have a leadership team that is kind of so ego driven, which we've seen before in in many organizations. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, you know, it's not just on the, you know, the human relatability front, but um, I actually now I don't recall if he said it during the interview for if it was in we were offline and we weren't live yet. But he was talking about how he still um, he still codes. Did he talk? Was that in the recording? So he's hands on piece, still codes and he still is close to the technology. And I think that builds a lot of credibility, you know, for a leader, to your point, a lot of approachability and credibility and trust that you have just by understanding some of the hands-on components of what, what's being done by the rest of the organization. Absolutely. You know, you gotta, you gotta walk the walk and talk the talk type of thing to build that trust. And, and that trust is, is really the foundation for a successful culture and even measuring your KPIs of culture, um, which I kind of go into in the next segment. If, if you don't have that trust with your overall organization, that data is going to be compromised because people need to know that you're going to, one, care what they have to say and two, create some action from their feedback. So that feedback loop is super important, obviously, yeah. um, as Walker told us. So that's kind of like the the cultural mission driven piece that I wanted to unpack a little bit because I almost feel like we need to section out this interview so we can kind of pull out all the technical stuff too. So when he went into the 3.0 versus 4.0 versus 5.0, I thought that was, you know, really incredibly telling and yet kind of scary. Like we we only have till 2032 to get ready for, you know, 5.0. I just got used to 4.0. <laughs> but right. I think his holistic um, message there is really just the the power of data 
Um, and I loved how he said kind of data is your job, which we just kind of talked about. There no longer is a department, an area, an industry that cannot um, function while not having visibility or actionability around their data. Uh, and marketing, as a marketing professional, that used to be kind of how we operated, right? It was just, you know, designers and creativity and and we throw it at the wall and say, oh, I hope something sticks. And now we have platform management tools and analytics and those types of things because data is our job. And I can't think of an area or an industry or any sort of professional role that doesn't need data to thrive. Yeah, I, I agree. And it's back to the question you had in the, the opening hot topics of how important how important is data going to be and um i mentioned that it i think it's going to become a currency and an asset that's valued to a higher degree um so just like companies look at you know what kind of inventory you have on your balance sheet or cash you have on hand i think they'll also start to look at some point at what, what kind of data you have and it, this is regardless of what industry you are too yeah. i think it's the interesting thing about the conversation with walker is that something that oftentimes can be viewed as as an old school legacy sort of industry like manufacturing mm -hmm. um still needs to think beyond just just the shop floor automation and just the the widgets that you're producing or whatever your your end product is you also have to be thinking about data and how we better service our customers and how we better plan for the future anticipate demand and all that stuff that goes along with it Absolutely. And it and manufacturing has become so much less siloed. It used to be seen as, you know, that's just the, the manufacturing floor. That's kind of how they operate. And now it's really become integrated into the overall heart of the business when it comes to how you consume data and attached to other areas um, within the business that you can see that full visibility of your manufacturing, of your supply chain because of those data point integrations. Yeah. And speaking of supply chain and data, I mean, you look at um, case in point, you look at supply chains today, um, a lot of them are caught flat footed because they don't have the data they need to be able to navigate the disruptions to supply chains today. You know, they, they're used to the steady state, predictable environment. Now, all of a sudden, we're not in a steady state, predictable environment. Data is more important than ever, but yet so many supply chains just don't have the data or they don't have visibility into the data. So that's just an example of more of a reactive Mm -hmm. of not having data but what walker's talking about is sort of looking ahead and if you're mm -hmm. if you're just acting and becoming more data centric just where you need to because you're feeling pain then you're falling behind mm -hmm. a lot of your competition it's sort of the yeah. takeaway I yeah absolutely i think i think that's a great point and you know speaking of that shaky supply chain um that global infrastructure scaling for Industry 4.0 and future Industry 5.0, I thought was really interesting. And I kind of wanted to dig into that with you just for a, a second here. And in thinking about how you scale that, can, that area to say somewhere that doesn't have as much connectivity as, you know, uh, developing countries, like will, will they ever kind of catch up to that? And he talked about that's going to be a faster transformation because that infrastructure is established. So I wondered if you would kind of give us a bit more thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I honestly had never, that never occurred to me until he said, said it that way. And it makes total sense, but I just, oh, yeah. it just never crossed my mind that there's a, you know, sort of a good news, bad news situation where the, the bad news is they're not as some, some countries aren't as mature as others in terms of um, building out 
an infrastructure for connectivity and that sort of thing. But now with the leapfrogging technology in that space, now uh, in some ways it might be easier for these developing countries that are far behind. It's easier for them to catch up or at least make a big leap toward where other countries are um, along the way. Yeah, and hopefully that scalability can be packaged culturally too um, and understanding what that means for specific areas um, of the world, especially in dealing with an uncertainty in supply chain and just overall resources. Yeah, yeah, absolutely agree with that. I also liked the pitfalls was a great question um, that we we saw from our audience. And I, I love, and I wanna put it on a t-shirt, of solve the problems of the workforce, you know, and and really get into that. Because I think a lot of times digital transformation gets watered down with executives talking about what they need, what the, you know, the systems need, what the culture needs. And we don't actually think of like, what exactly does the workforce need to be more efficient and more productive? And I think that's such an important lens for specifically leaders to remember is they're servicing their workforce with this new technology, not the other way around. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and also the uh, the software vendors and the system integrators, the implementer, the implementing yeah. technical implementation companies, they're going in and they know that the executives are the real decision makers. They know they're influenced yeah. by others, but the the decision make the decision making ultimately lies with the executive team. So it makes you wonder if 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 you had lower levels levels of the organization that were actually making technology and process improvement decisions, would sale would software vendors and system integrators uh, focus their offering a bit differently if they knew yeah. that they were trying to solve employee problems rather than speaking the language of executives and really perpetuating some of the blind spots that executives have and some of the the hot buttons because they've really mastered you know software yeah. vendors big consulting firms have really mastered that art of selling to executives. But what gets lost along the way is what what does the workforce actually need to do their jobs better and to be a better organization? Yeah. And if that's mismatched, then we don't see the overall business value of the new technology because that user adoption, there's there's either resistance there or disruption there because the, the strategy hasn't been fully baked, but they get enchanted by, you know, these different vendors sales process because they could sell, you know, glasses to a blind man. Heck, I'd buy something from them because they are they've really figured out how to hone into that overall machine. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, unfortunately for a lot of big implementations or big software implementations, or the best an organization can hope for is to show up in one of the advertising campaigns for SAP, for example. Yeah. Um, I still remember when Nike, when Nike, uh, I don't know if they had just selected SAP or they went live on SAP or something. Somewhere along the way, they were in the journey toward SAP. I remember being at, in an airport and seeing the big billboard that said uh, Nike runs on SAP. Um, so that's great. That's cool. That's, that's good advertising for Nike, but that shouldn't be your end state goal. I mean, you should be actually, my question would be, did Nike actually get business value mm -hmm. out of that implementation? In this case, I know I'm going off track here by picking yeah. on Nike. I could pick a million other companies that fell in the same trap, mm -hmm. but I know for a fact that the, the implementation at Nike was not successful. There, it was yeah. largely considered a failure. In fact, it's, it's, uh, it's in our top 10 list of the top 10 biggest mm -hmm. ERP failures of all time. So, um, so that's, you know, that, I guess that just shows how low the bar has been set in the world of technology adoption, technology implementations in the business world, unfortunately. Yeah, but hopefully we'll
Yeah. Absolutely. And I, I think a lot can be learned from those failures, even as um, Walker talked about, is that mistakes really constitute success. The challenge is, are you Nike and can you afford that mistake, right, in the digital transformation world? Because a lot of times when the mistake is on the vendor side or, or a big strategic error, um, which is something third stage really helps our, our clients identify before we have to triage the situation, resources and funds are lost. Um, so that's one thing that, of course, we learn from our, our smaller mistakes and even bigger mistakes in business. But remembering that a digital transformation might be the biggest project uh, a mid-tier, uh, mid-market organization ever goes through. Um, so identifying that strategy up front and learning from that collective piece. And that was actually my, my last point here is his number one tip was tap into that collective knowledge. And I thought that was really well put just because there is so much out there, but it's just understanding the role that bias plays in your overall um, just structure. He mentioned like a system architecture uh, or an architect and making sure that that's completely agnostic in building out that support system for an organization. Uh, and I, I think it really obviously hits home for us, right? Because that's our overall mission here at Third Stage is to provide that independent, unbiased, ag technology agnostic, um, collective insights to our client community. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it gets back to your original point at the beginning of this segment about, uh, you know, being mission driven. And, and uh, you know, that's something he talked quite a bit about as well. Absolutely. And I, th I think it identifies a lot with our cultural DNA, um, since we are a more entrepreneurial um, organization that really just has a passion for bringing technology and enabling technology to build a better business. Um, our consultants are truly passionate about that. And it's a really unique group um, that is completely mission driven when it comes to doing the right thing for our clients. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it and you talk about bias too, and eliminating that bias and not giving ourselves an incentive to recommend one solution over another or to implement a solution a certain way um, because it benefits us benefits us economically. That's something we've uh, steered well clear of in our in our journey so far. Well, absolutely, and I can't wait to have Walker back on. What a great conversation! Um, and it was amazing, you know, the live stream engagement as well. Um, if you don't join our live stream on Tuesday mornings with Eric's interview, I highly recommend it. It's a, a great time to engage and ask questions live um, within the making of this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. And typically, most of the time, that's at 10 a.m. U.S. Eastern time on Tuesdays, mm -hmm. which could be afternoon or evening, depending on where you are. Uh, but sometimes we also have off-cycle live streams, especially when we have when we have international guests. We might do it at odd times. But if you just follow me, follow me on LinkedIn or subscribe on YouTube, uh, you'll get the alerts whenever those are scheduled. So, but they typically are Tuesdays, and certainly this podcast. If you, if you miss it, if you miss the live stream, it'll be in this podcast every Wednesday with new episodes. So. Well, good. Well, we'll, uh, well, that was a great conversation. I agree. We should have him back and I would like to have him back sooner than later. Cause I, partly because I didn't get through most of the questions <laughs> I, and the audience had a ton of questions I didn't get to, uh, felt kind of bad though. I feel like we, we covered so much ground, but yet we didn't, there's so much more we could have covered. Um, so we'll, we'll be sure to have him on again, but, uh, we're going to shift gears a bit and, uh, we're going to have you as our special guest, uh, Kyler, it's sort of like a, a, a clone of you. You're yes. going to play a clip yourself uh presenting 
uh, on creating a culture of transformation. And this is a keynote session from our Stratosphere 2022 conference, which we held earlier this year. So we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll play that clip. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting. And we recently hosted our Digital Stratosphere 2022 virtual event. It's three days of packed content related to digital transformation best practices, about 16 or 18 different workshops and different speakers that are presenting on different topics, everything you need to know about transformation. The, the bad news is you, if you miss that event, the event's over. The, the live event already happened. But the good news, if you've missed it, or even if you did attend it and you want to see replays or you want to catch the sessions you missed, you can do that now by going to stratosphere2022.com. Go to stratosphere2022.com, register. All you have to do is put in your, your name and email address, uh, just a few fields. You get immediate access to all the recordings. And the recordings cover everything from digital strategy, um, software selection, organizational change, process improvement, architecture, data migration, cloud, trends in the industry, um, how to avoid failure, some of the legal aspects to think about, contractual aspects to think about as it relates to your transformation. All that is stuff that you'll get by registering for Stratosphere 2022 replay. And again, go to stratosphere2022.com and you can listen to all the replays of all the workshops that you might have missed at the event. So hope you check it out, and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 68. You can find new episodes every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as all the audio podcast platforms. Thanks for being here today. Um, we're going to shift gears a bit now, and we're going to play you a clip of Kyler presenting her keynote session at our Stratosphere 2022 conference, where she talked about creating a culture of transformation. So let's cut to the clip. So we've been talking a lot about what is culture. What does that mean? As it's one of those things similar to OCM that can kind of be intangible. And a lot of times our clients don't often see the investment from an actual analytics standpoint. So that's something that we've kind of been helping to turn their head or, or shift that perception. So I want to talk about what is culture. And just a reminder, I can't quite see your comments right now. So my team will let me know if you have some questions, but definitely want to make sure that they're that we're opening the door for some interactive conversation as this is really important, especially now in our current business climate. So what is culture? We define it as shared values, goals, objectives, attitude, and then perception as well. And that perception is something that's kind of new because it can influence behavior, um, even though it's not something that's typically defined within a, a culture. But we think it's important to elaborate on a business perspective of, of how do your teams, departments, leaders perceive the overall transformation or new technology implementation. Uh, we also want to say culture is oftentimes misunderstood. It's really not a good thing or a bad thing. It's often vilified because it's, you know, we have a bad culture, we have a toxic culture, but it's actually not that type of um, aspect in which you can kind of define. It's really just a part of the company's overall identity, not the main thing that drives it. Like I said here, it's a piece to the puzzle, but not truly key to company success, but we do believe it is key to creating a culture or environment community 
that you can effectively implement a new technology, an upgrade, what other change you're creating as a business. And then culture can be different in areas of the business. I think this is pretty straightforward. We all know and have worked with clients or for companies where there might be a great culture in one department and leadership structure that's really solid. But then in other areas, it could be a, a less intentional leadership structure that can lead to either a, a bad experience on the employee side. But we'll get into kind of those subcultures as well. Um, the culture of influence, so what we kind of want to talk about is, is culture is really the snow on the mountain. I say that as an, an avid outdoors Colorado um, person. It's, it's almost like an avalanche warning. So you can climb the mountain, but if the snow or the avalanche is, is falling upon you, that can totally bring down your climb, your ski, however you want to create that analogy but it's something that can really take the, the legs out of any sort of project or, or implementation that you're working on. Um, and then this one, you can say it with me, even though I cannot hear you, I believe you're saying it is, technology does not change culture. It is not a Band-Aid strategy. So if you are struggling with cultural aspects of your business and you say, oh, I really would like a technology to bring in and standardize these processes and you know, change the behavior of my overall workforce or create a new customer experience flow. That's not the first step to changing that. You really kind of have to clean up your side of the street, so to speak, and change the culture and influence that before you can integrate any technology successfully. So some risks of cultural mistrust in digital transformation. We talked a lot today about user adoption rates. Um, this is something where you might have the best strategy and, and the most sophisticated implementation plan, but without you know kind of following that flip, following that through and understanding how you're going to get the user adoption rate or or make sure that you're influencing the use of this new system. And if you have any sort of mistrust in that organization, misunderstanding, misperception, then it really affects the ability for your users to, to leverage this new system and technology and also creates a, a level of fear when we're talking about different industry buzzwords such as automation. I recently did a, a video on why you should stop saying automation and create this misunderstanding within your workforce that, hey, you're automating my job. I'm no longer valuable to the organization. So considering that when you have the mistrust within a culture, that's really going to be the foundation to making sure that your employees, that your frontline workforce believes you. When it comes to processes inefficiencies, this is another place where there might be some mistrust. I know um, Christy and Amanda talked this morning about that tribal knowledge where that employee really creates and associates their own value with the ability to work around a process or that, you know, beloved spreadsheet or tribal knowledge that they have within the organization. It really, uh, you know, equates to their overall value and can create whether it's intentional or unintentional resistance to the new technology, especially if there is any culture of mistrust within the organization, that resistance will stem from fear. It's just you know a very natural human process 
if we don't trust something, if someone comes up to you on the side of the road and says, you know, give me $20 or 20 euro, and you don't know that person, it's just a, a natural reaction to not have that trust relationship. But if someone in a position of trust says, hey, you know, give me $20 because it's going to benefit, you know, our lunch bill, then you're you're able to kind of engage in that overall relationship and communication with a, a bit more of a positive experience. Rippling impacts is something we look at a lot, um, especially now in this current business climate of the great resignation or our labor shortage. We talk about employee attrition and really looking at what is the workforce um, experiencing right now. For example, I just recently talked about on our ground control podcast, a study from PwC that said that any company that experienced any sort of furloughs or layoffs or anything like that during the COVID-19 pandemic that we're still experiencing, over 91% of employees no longer trusted that organization and felt as though they weren't um, strategizing and they were disorganized. So we want to really continue that, the rippling impacts of that cultural influence. If your culture doesn't think that you're a sustainable business option, they're obviously not going to be as motivated to implement this new technology or whatever process change is within your objective. Adaptability. We talk a lot about flexibility of an organization and the ability to kind of pivot and adapt. We, you can only pivot and adapt if you have that culture of actually having that flexibility within your strategies and just your overall community. If you have a very rigid culture that's very process oriented, um, it's not easy to go to a more flexible or a different initiative overnight. So you need to consider that when it comes to your overall culture. And then most importantly, your customer experience. We've done a lot of research that shows that when you do have a culture that's not as efficient um, within your organization, your customers will ultimately be impacted, whether that's your supply chain isn't optimized or you don't have the ability to package goods in the fast enough to get it to your customer and it doesn't create a competitive advantage then that's something that we really need to consider. Looks like I have a question here um, that we're getting via text. <laughs> so thank you, Cameron, who's on my team that's helping me out here. So I do want to take this question. Um, the question is, we often find that organizations that are trying to use technology to enable better decision making or better business processes will find that they need new skills within their IT organization how can we fill those gaps that's an excellent question and we find that a lot with something like an open source system where you it does seem like it's a more flexible option when we look at things like odoo or anything like that but a lot of times it requires an a new it infrastructure or just additional resources and skill set that you might not have within your organization so my answer to, to that would be one, make sure you consider that in your software evaluation process. Make sure you really understand, hey, if I do choose this software, I need to establish the roles and responsibilities ahead of time in order to understand how I am going to compensate for any lack of skill set or additional resources. And then utilizing your consultants, we help a lot of our um, partner clients uh, create job descriptions 
or even network within those roles to make sure that they can fill those gaps when there is any sort of skill set um, discrepancy. So great question. Keep them coming. Um, definitely something that's important to consider throughout this experience. All right, so we always talk about evaluating current state and something we wanna do is kind of flip the perception that change management and culture is not a hard and accountable KPI within the organization. It is, it should be seen as a metric, it should be seen as a strategic goal and it should be seen as something that you can evaluate, not from you know just what you heard from Susie in accounting. It's actually a really structured process to make sure we're understanding the current state of the organization. I know all of our consultant partners out there have gone into you know a, a new business kickoff with a client, and they've said, "Oh, you know our culture is awesome," and their leadership thinks that you know they have this amazing culture. Again, culture is not good or bad. But they think as though we've heard earlier Brian Lacaruba say, you know, it's something they all want this new technology. Well, without the actual data and assessment, we don't actually know that. And we don't know if that's the same experience for the organization and enterprise holistically or if that's just one area. We've talked a lot today about the connection of overall technologies and the cross-functional need to understand every sort of process or strategy from each area of the business in order to effectively optimize the technology we're choosing. So those third-party assessments, surveys, research, company understanding, going in and actually assessing the organization, their identity, what motivates the employees, the value, the organizational structure, how the systems affect, affect their overall experience. That's something that, that we need to be able to have that current state 10,000 foot view, or there's no way we can create actionable change and make sure that we're including the software system or new technology that best fits our culture. Um, we need to understand our impact on our ROI and the business processes. It is something that if you have a culture that is not innovative, that's not progressive, that's not ready for a whole new technology, especially when you don't have the resources, we need to know that because it will cause disruption to the business and ultimately you know, impact the overall ROI of the overall um, enterprise. Um, so uh, something that we always suggest in this is in influ influencer insights, excuse me, say that 10 times fast, and focus groups. So find that person that is vocal within their overall department or is a leader and, you know, followed by many of, of their peers or colleagues and hold those open focus groups. And most importantly, within that qualitative data um, gathering, make sure you can communicate that autonomy. That's why we always recommend having a third party go in, not something that's going to influence their overall answers, make them less honest, nervous. Am I gonna lose my job if I say, you know, my organizational structure isn't supportive and I'm nervous about this new technology because, you know, I can't even surface feedback to my management team. We all need to know that. And usually most of that good, hard, actionable data is found within a safe and an anonymous situation. We also want to map that feedback route um, and, and, and establish our leadership listening skills. 
So when we do have someone that might be struggling with that new system, we talk about user adoption. What is their route to make sure that they're asking for additional training, that their leadership team is is has the skills to listen to them to say, I'm really struggling with this this new system, or I'm I'm nervous about the automation that is coming into payroll because it's my job to sign all the checks and I don't feel like I'll be valuable anymore. How do we evaluate that that resistance or that fear really in a in a positive and safe environment? And we want to map that out as as part of our planning here. Okay, we're here listening to Kyler talk about how to create a culture of transformation. We're going to take a quick break and we'll continue the conversation when we come back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 68. We're here listening to Kyler's presentation about creating a culture of transformation. And we want to establish a strong base. So innovation grows from a strong foundation within the business. That's core business strategies, finances, accounting, inventory management, human capital management, sales process. Those are all good baselines to make sure, as we always say, we have those strategies laid out. We have and understand our current state processes, our future state target operating model, and we know what we're going to be today and have alignment on what we want to be tomorrow, as Eric always says, what we want to be when we grow up. So that involves a lot of pre-work and understanding what your culture and how they're going to be impacted by the new technology and a strong foundation. We talk about our house analogy that we did earlier today, and Eric and I talk a lot, a lot about on our podcast, but if you're building a house on a, a low foundation or a hill or dirt or anything like that, there's a reason why a lot of houses have concrete foundations, right? Is because that's the strongest material we can build upon. And we want to have the strongest material as a business, a company and an enterprise that we can build upon. We've talked a little bit about trust level, and this is something that will be measured within that assessment process. Does your company and your overall community trust you? Do they think that you can actually achieve this new business or digital transformation and that they will be in a spot where they are, are looking to utilize the new system because they trust you to make the best decision for them as an employee and for the business success as a whole, you really wanna make sure that you understand that. 
subculture awareness. So this is an interesting piece of what we've been looking at as far as our, our cultural resources. Um, identifying those company subcultures and that experience. We talked a little bit about this already at the beginning, but we've all worked at a place where you might be in a department that has kind of a really broken structure, back-ended processes, and a, a weak, honestly, leadership hierarchy, and it really affects the overall morale of the team and the experience of the employee. But you might look across the way over to marketing because, you know, that's obviously my favorite um, department and say, wow, they look like they're really collaborating. They're having a lot of fun. They seem as though they're excited to get to work. Why is my experience so different from theirs? And we need to go in as business leaders and measure that so that we we don't go into a situation where we're implementing a new software system across the enterprise. We have one department that has user adoption rates that are, you know, in the 90s, 100 percent. And then we have another one that, that our leadership team isn't able to set expectations or show them the business value of this new system. So and they have, you know, a, a 50, 60 percent user adoption rate. We want to get ahead of that. So, again, we can we can forward think, if you will, um, any sort of disruption to the overall business and create the best strategies for success of this new digital transformation. Encourage cross-departmental understanding of different roles and responsibilities. So Teresa and Brian talked a little bit about this in the business process, which is great because you know that's really the hard science winner, if you will, of the overall uh, digital transformation process. That's really where we're mapping things, we're creating new systems um, and working together. But from a cultural standpoint, just having that awareness of what other what other people, whatever humans experience within the business, and then establishes that connection. Oh, this is my job and these are my pain points. And then working with someone completely across the aisle and saying, oh, this is my job. These are my pain points. And being able to say, oh, you know, I, I had no idea that you were even struggling with that. That's what I do you know, sharing those types of strategies and scaling across the business is not only good for the overall implementation planning when it comes to new technology, but it's just good for cross collaboration and creating a culture of collaboration. It also grows empathy. You know, if you are um, working as a salesperson in a CRM system and it takes you four hours that you could be actually out taking sales calls, but you're trying to, you know, create the data in your CRM system, and that's inefficient for you. If you're IT and you thought, oh, you know, it's easy to go out and sell, and now you see kind of the struggle with the current system, that grows empathy. And that creates an, an area in which that person from IT is much more likely to support their sales colleague and make sure that, that whatever system they might be in charge of implementing considers the experience of that uh, colleague across the aisle. This also is a great step in establishing a digital transformation core team, which we all know is so important to the success of an overall technology implementation or selection and understanding how it will affect every area of the business. But when you go through these cross-departmental exercises, you're able to see kind of the influencers, the leaders on that team, the people that should be involved in planning 
those new business processes or that implementation planning or even the organizational change management planning um, and establishing that really strong core team so that ultimately your business transformation is more successful. Creating a change plan. So say we've gone through all of these exercises, we realize that our culture isn't quite ready for our technology transformation. How do we make sure that we, we do support them in creating this change, which we talk about a lot, and a culture that is excited, that's motivated, that's innovated um, for new technology and just for overall business growth? Um, the first the first idea is just to be realistic. We all know that change does not happen overnight. You know, change is a muscle that really needs to be developed on many different levels, all starting with the executive leadership and that overall awareness that they need to be intentional about changing or optimizing their business culture. Um, executive leadership support, like we just said, it really truly needs to come from the top. Those might not be the overall execution, but setting the stage and the expectation that, hey, you know, we have some work to do on our culture and we want to do that as a benefit to be a good company that people want to work at and then ultimately achieve whatever technology transformation we're trying to go through. Um, so understanding and creating that and seeing it as an investment in the insurance of your overall project. So if we do not invest in a culture right now from all of the data that we got from our assessments and don't see that as a priority, then it's almost like crashing your car without insurance. It's going to cost you way more down the road, you know, to get your car fixed, to redesign these project strategies because your implementation failed because you have a culture that was resisting that change and you didn't take it seriously. We also want to understand for our leadership the impact of user adoption on ROI. Like we talked about in our other scenario, if we have a we have a department that's not utilizing our systems effectively and ultimately impacting our customers, they're going to remember that that ROI is something that was effective and their overall experience was poor. Um, systems work, like we talked about with Marcus. There's the system is always going to work, right? For the most part. Um, but if people don't use them, it becomes completely irrelevant. And the executive leadership team and the steering committee really needs to understand the importance of making that a huge priority within their strategic planning. Digital transformation pre-work. I like to call it pre-work because like we talked about with Teresa and Brian, when should you start those business process mapping? Well, as soon as you know about it, right? So there is a lot of strategies and overall initiatives that businesses can go through to empower their digital transformation before they even start, right? Um, so establishing those roles and responsibilities, you know, back to that question that we got, that great question, establishing, hey, we have a gap here because we're, you know, we're going with D365 and that's a more flexible system than SAP S4 HANA, which is more standardized. Um, so we need to make sure that we have that ability to either shift our talent right now or identify any gaps within our structure that we need to be able to either source internally or fill externally. That accountability and shared expectations for management. 
So we've all kind of seen that that call center, I call it type of model where, you know, the the call lead or the center lead will go in and say, like, this is your talk track. You need to do this. And if you don't, you're fired. Well, right now, that's not really working for businesses because of labor shortage, because of attrition. And it's really kind of 2022 is the year of the employee, the year of human capital management strategies to make sure you're optimizing that experience. And honestly, that's not the way that it should be either. Either We should create accountability on both ends and make it almost as a shared relationship of, you know, these are our new job behaviors. And this is as a manager, as a leader, is how I'm going to support you to make sure that we achieve these these shared KPIs, not that you do something different. And that's something can, that can be set up just overall that training and those new skill sets and honestly, the emotional intelligence that's needed for that um, beforehand. Internal communication, buzzwords. We talked about my example of automation. You know, I wouldn't say that you need to go in as a business leader and if you're getting a new finance system, run into the finance department and say, oh my goodness, isn't this amazing? This is all going to be automated. Well, that might be amazing, but the way that that is perceived within your overall internal communication is that my job functions are going away. Like, oh my goodness, am I going to need to look for another job? Am I not valuable to the department? So just really being intentional about how you communicate that. Going to that employee, say, hey, we're going to automate payroll. And it means that you don't have to do that manually anymore, but now we get to develop you in A, B, and C areas that will give you more job opportunity and bring more value to the organization. Um, tactics for cultural transformation. So this is really kind of the meat and potatoes, if you will, of how you get to a culture of transformation. Um, communicating that vision for a new culture. We talked about how that starts at the top and that needs to be intentional, down to middle leadership, and then ultimately to the front lines. Everyone should be aligned on that. Organizational design, how will these new roles and responsibilities support that new culture? How do you as employees or our workforce get to enable this new technology or get to enable us to progress as a business, which ultimately means more opportunity for you? Performance systems reward to in it essentially reinforce the desired culture. So making sure that, again, it, within that intentional communication structure, and we'll talk about kind of benefits realization in a second here, but how do you make sure that you are recognizing those leaders or those employees that are doing the things to create that new culture or to um, help support the technology integration how do you make sure you're creating a system that yay you know kyla went through all of her training today and she processed five more sales orders than she usually does because of this new technology giving them that data within a way that they can understand how this will benefit their overall business and their experience within the company stakeholder assessments to ensure that senior leadership and key stakeholders are aligned Really what this does is, is continues to drive that cultural alignment within the executive ranks. We talk a lot about it's not just aligning one time and then you know five years later throughout a technology implementation, making sure you're still aligned. No, we're gonna go in and do those you know, consistent frequency of project health checks 
to make sure we are all still aligned whether there's employee turnover or whether just a lot of time has passed and we need to you know regroup on the overall objectives of the project to make sure we are in supporting the employees that are, are really championing this new technology implementation and that validation of that future state business processes systems um, configuration that supports that future state so if we want to you know go out and be a, a fully automated manufacturing system and we're removing all human life from our manufacturing floors well then we need to talk about what that means for those people that are moving and then mostly what that means for that new system and the integrations around it if you want more information on this i recently talked about this for um, amazon and their new robot manufacturing lines on one of our ground control episodes and it was really interesting just to to consider all of the things that these emerging technologies are making manufacturing strategies consider. You know, how far can the robot reach? Do we need to completely redo, you know, the assembly line? Do we need to create different raw materials that the robot can easily assemble and that it doesn't need, you know, in human intervention? Those smart manufacturing floors they still have, um, they're not 100% automated, right? They're, they still have a human component to them, but we need to think through all of those things so that we can commit to a future state vision. Benefits realization. So this is really kind of taking the context of the benefits realization from how it affected the ROI on the software side um, to how, how did it affect and create value within the business side? So the, in, the intentional communications of the benefit, the business benefits um, and the digital transformation, we want to con be consistent and have a high frequency around the ROI impact. Hey, you know, because all of you helped us integrate this new NetSuite software, we were able to, you know, increased revenue by 20% in Q4. Being specific about that and creating that recognition around the employees that did that. Um, new company innovations. So say, yeah, we we automated our manufacturing, but that made, made it so that we could create more leadership positions and develop a, a bigger footprint um, for our distribution, which our employees really enabled. Um, again, we talk about that recognition uh, by calling out specific case studies of an employee or department that really excelled at this new transformation and that culture of recognition because we are innovators now with our, our new culture plans. Promotions and new opportunities. I think a lot of times this is overlooked, especially when we're evaluating those new roles and responsibilities within our change plan and communicating that as an opportunity hey, we won't have three coordinators anymore because we're optimizing those roles, but we will now have, you know, two managers and a director role up that's going to let us op optimize opportunities for growth internally. And here's how we're going to train and support and develop you as an employee to get you there because we think you're worth it and we think you're valuable. Um, and then team wins, especially in those cross-functional roles, right? You know, um, Kyler from manufacturing helped so and Eric from shipping create this new innovation of, of how we're going to package our product and get it out the door faster. They work together, even though they typically don't 
across roles to create that united front and really optimize that overall culture of the company and that collaboration. Okay. Thanks, Kyler. That's a great presentation. Learned a lot, very informative, and that's a very relevant topic that not enough of us talk about. So I'll be curious to debrief with you here when we come back, but first we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 68. I'm here with Kyler, and we just heard you, Kyler, speak about uh, creating a culture of transformation, your your keynote session from Stratosphere 2022, which, by the way, you can download all the other sessions at stratosphere2022.com. You can register and access all the other sessions that have everything to do with all kinds of stuff related to digital transformation. But uh, let's talk about your session. What were some of your uh, takeaways now that you've had time to think about it at that event? Yeah, it's like kind of like the ghost of Christmas past, you know, um, <laughs> to debrief exactly. on, on myself and and I think culture sometimes is is misunderstood, and it seems like kind of the uh, end all be all of of creating um, a culture of transformation. And, and really, it's it's just a piece of the puzzle. And when we unpack that almost buzzword of culture, if you will, uh, we just see shared values and the overall trust that's involved in an organization. And if you think about it, I almost think about it like a marriage because you probably spend more time with your colleagues than sometimes you do with your you know, husband or wife or partner or what have you. But just like in a marriage, you have shared values. You have a, a similar commitment that you've made to one another. And it's just the same with an organization um, in making that commitment for the actual business and then to the employee. Um, so that's just the one thing I wanted to drive home um, within that is it really is a shared trust. And that's the key to success in either changing a culture or making a, a, a digital transformation within a culture or just thriving and growing within a culture. Yeah. And it's also, you know, culture is also sort of like the heart and soul of an organization. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you, it's, a, it's one thing to look at financial metrics and KPIs and mission statements, stuff like that. That's all great. But at the end of the day, culture really is that secret sauce or could can be the secret sauce for organizations that manage it well. Absolutely. And I think the, the thing that a lot of times can be overwhelming is how do you measure culture um, and that communication around that and, and viewing culture as an actual KPI that you can improve upon uh, and looking at it that way from a data-driven approach, I think is some things that, that people don't 
really invest in. They say, oh, you know, it kind of is what it is, or it will change over time when we have, you know, fresh new people in, in these roles. But you really do have the power through data to understand your culture and to build a culture that's ready for that change of a new technology, of new processes, of new, um, you know, roles and responsibilities. It's much easier to undergo that change if you've established what your culture is and if your community is ready for that big change. Yeah, and it forces you to be more deliberate about what you want to be when you grow up and what kind of organization you're trying to create. So in some ways, it forces you into making those decisions and being deliberate about how you create the culture, too. And I think that intention is is so important. And it's it's not intention if you don't communicate it, right? <laughs> so it might be one thing to say it in a boardroom and, um, you know, really say we're going to, you know, create a culture of innovation. We're going to embrace new technology and we're going to grow. But if you don't actually communicate that in a way that resonates to the overall organization, then it just lives in that boardroom and never actually manifests within the your community. Yeah. And in today's day and age of labor shortages and competition for scarce resources, culture can often be what, what attracts people and keeps people at, mm -hmm. at an organization, which leads to higher performance, higher profit, and all the other you know business benefits of that. Absolutely. Well, I hope everyone liked that keynote. If you have feedback or questions, you can always reach out to me at kyler.cheatham at thirdstage-consulting.com. And I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on company culture and building a culture for transformation. Yeah. Yeah. Nice job. That's a really good topic, good presentation. And uh, who knows, maybe you'll be one of our, our change consultants someday. Yeah. You know, I don't know if yeah. I'm ready. <laughs> Deep down, I think you want to be a change consultant, but we'll talk about that offline. You know, as long as I still get to do the podcasts, I'll do whatever you want. <laughs> You're right. That's your favorite part of your job, right? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <doing that. laughs> well, thanks for thanks for that uh, presentation and and all the other uh, and and for putting together the show for us this week. Uh, thank you to our guest Walker Reynolds for being here today. Thank you to the audience for listening and participating in the discussion. Uh, we're going to wrap up today's episode, but be sure to catch uh, new episodes every Wednesday on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, as well as all the audio podcast platforms. You can find new episodes released first thing Wednesday mornings. So be sure to check that out, subscribe to us, and we will look forward to seeing you next time on Transformation Ground Control.